Welcome back, everyone. I hope that you're all doing well. Joining me today is one of my favorite people to talk to, uh, really, in the entire space, just because he and I get along so well, but also because he uh, has a tendency to send long voice messages in my Telegram chat that are always bangers. But before I get any further, uh, I'm talking today with none other than Dimes, the co-host of the Blood Satellite podcast. How are you, sir? I'm doing very, very well. Thank you so much for having me on. And similarly, you you leave long voice messages too, and they're always a treat. And you're one of the few guys that I can talk to about the thing that we're going to talk about on the show because it's really weird. And very few people have like the mind to like find this stuff interesting. So hopefully we can uh, get a few other people on our wavelength tonight. Yes, uh, I, I don't want people to think that we're just blowing uh, smoke and sending smoke signals up our rear ends like this is some sort of Indian circle jerk. But I, what I do want to make people understand is, <laughs> is that this is going to be a rather meta-heavy conversation in, in that um, if the title I keep with today's uh, recording, which we're recording on January 22nd, 2024, it is 7.40 p.m. my time when this is being recorded, uh, the title for it is going to be Time and Technology Featuring Dimes. And this is a meta conversation because uh, Dimes has recently tuned me in to a, a a great Canadian scholar by the name of Dr. Harold Innes, and he wrote quite a few books. One of the ones that I am reading is The Bias of Communication, and you had recently gone over on your show, I believe it's called Communication and Empire. That's right. Yeah. Empire Communication. Um, that's the one I read. He, like you said, he's an author of a great many, but... Um, yeah, that was the one I like, and I I just want to get to the rest of his stuff, too. Yeah, and alongside uh, Innis, we're also probably going to have a conversation today on the late and great Marshall McLuhan. So it's, it's really going to be a Canadian-heavy uh, focused discussion this evening. But the reason why we're doing this is because I think Dimes and I, and I think everyone is to some extent fundamentally aware that our sort of online politicking where we all become critics and we're all screaming into this void of screams, as I like to call it, or we're all taking sort of a, a digital ayahuasca or DMT. I'm just throwing everything out that I like to use with uh, describing this place. <laughs> Definitely has uh, neurochemical effects, neuroplasticity impact alongside totally altering our perception of time. Uh, and before Carl Benjamin, you know, uh, Sargon of Akkad, like, either delisted or, or hid away his vast video backlog of him as Sargon. Uh, he had this great video up from 2017 called, you know, what happened at VidCon 2017. And it had the Ben Garrison commercial or comic of him being yelled <laughs> at as a garbage human being by Anita Sarkeesian. And every time I look at it, I just feel like that much older. <laughs> I'm like, this happened 6,000 years ago. This is like reading the uh, pictographs uh, uh, of the, hieroglyphs in ancient egypt in the valley of the kings and you're like what is this ancient lore and the reason why you feel that way is just because you know 2017 is only a little over what it's been seven years and in, but in our online space it feels like six or seven thousand because of how fast we're constantly plugged in and how fast the quote-unquote discourse uh, changes topics like does you know for instance i think it was a little over a year and a half ago that and this is no insult to the guy i just know that he uh, had this big sort of meltdown of sorts on twitter um ca bond sort of just talking about you know who's on who's who's taking teal money and things like that and it's just like if you're not plugged into these things you don't have a complete historiographic picture of what's going on and that totally alters your your perception of time 
in a way that I don't think a pre-social media world was completely aware of. Uh, Even in the early internet days of Usenet or dial-up, I don't think we did. So this is a very meta-heavy conversation. But how do do you see yourself, Dimes, perceiving time? Or how, how much do you think it's changed compared to your to your real life or your your real job working in uh, marketing advertising yes uh, thank you that's a big question and I got a couple of things I want to say to that the first is anecdotal um, my wife is five years younger than me and we had a conversation not long ago where she just made some comment like you you remember myspace oh my god and of course myspace was was within her lifetime but it wasn't within her frame of reverence it was like just a couple years older but the fact that i remembered myspace the social platform there's a lot of listeners right now that might not know what the fuck that is and that's kind of the point the idea that that was a demarcation point even though that was just a a type of social network it was kind of mind-blowing or like there's some people who can remember 9-11 and those who don't um but a couple of phenomena i found were interesting so the first is that Marshall McLuhan in his book, and I'm not getting ahead of myself. I'm going to keep this one short. Marshall McLuhan in his book, which we'll discuss, Understanding Media, Extensions of Man, he talks about the creation of utility time that uh, up until the Industrial Revolution and up until clocks, basically, um, which is pre-Industrial Revolution, but around the same time, we started conceptualizing the recording of time differently. Now, we always recorded time. We always had water clocks in the past. We understood noon and things like that. We had sundials. But there was a shift that occurred around the time when we started measuring time with clocks that clocks seemed to be each second or minute or hour was like a container, and it contained work, and it contained labor. And so you saw a different spatialization of time like uh, time is a good things you can do or your day and it kept breaking down smaller and smaller and smaller and what i've noticed over time as well is that the way we measure generations is becoming more smaller and more discreet so even the idea of measuring a generation previously like the boomers gen x millennials i think that's around like 20 years uh we put a lot of focus on that to the point where we treat generations like they're different teams that we're part of even though we're just links on the exact same chain it's like it's millennials versus boomers or boomers versus gen x it's a strange way of looking at it um and i don't really like that but putting that aside what i found is as the generations have progressed we've introduced this idea of like an early millennial i'm a late millennial this person's an early millennial we've started fragmenting the generations themselves into like thirds or halves because the 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 profundity which we're measuring the time is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and it seems that that's going to keep continuing um and so that's how it's changed over my lifetime um and and that's anecdotally with me and my wife but i think that's a lot of people's shared experience that even within our scene we talk about how the past five years have been radical and i think part of that's cultural part of that's technology there's a lot of factors at play for why that is but i think that's uh probably as good an answer as any what do you think about that well, like we said before, we decided to record it. We we also, I think, understood that this is somewhat of a very Western conversation to be having. I mean, this is very meta. This is a very meta textual discussion that I think we're, we're going to try and dive into as well, which makes you wonder how many other people are, are sort of thinking the sort of same stuff. But uh, when I want to hear how you describe it, you're absolutely right. Our, our perception of generation has radically 
uh, you know, it's it's become more condensed. I, I had a conversation not too long ago because my cousin, who was born in 2000, uh, she just recently got married and she's, she's having a baby soon. And my, my mother was helping out, just sort of helping get the baby shower underway and all that jazz. And she was just like, there's no gratefulness. And she was, she, now she's Gen X and she's complaining about sort of Zoomer, you know, lack of, of gratefulness. And she's like, are, they, are all young people like this? And I said, well, most young people in my own perception are view things as transactional. There's no understanding of charity or doing something out of the goodness of your heart without people expecting for you to pay them back somewhere down the line. And I said, that definitely warps your ability to understand human relations that way. And I said, I don't know when that really started, but I can tell you that that's what I see and what I know. And then she's like, well, are, are you like that? And I said, well, no, but I was also raised differently, but also there's a big five and a half year gap between her and I. So I can't even tell you what her growing up was like or how she is. Like she's on Snapchat. She's on all these other social media apps that I'm not on. And I make it an effort to not really be on a lot outside of what's necessary to run this weird little world that I am as this amphibious uh, reactionary individual. But outside of that, I, I try not to be on it with my real name or anything. I have no existing social media outside of the Prudentialist. And even then when I'm on here, you know, we, we talk about things in a manner of character arcs we talk about lore and it's partially i think due to sort of like the gamification of our of our vocabulary like video games have inferred a sort of linguistic um circumlocution understanding of how we talk about things like oh well, he's on his like you know for, like i remember dating somebody and she was like oh i'm on an x kick like oh she's gonna do something <laughs> for a little bit and then lose interest or whatever because people do that women especially but you know when people say they're on an x kick now on twitter or whatever it's like no they're, they're on a character arc they're on they're on this like you know episode like, they treat their shows like television and seasons or or episodes of certain things like a dlc or a video game uh expansion pack and it's just very strange to see how we've allowed our our mediums to radically transform our perception of time but also our sense of self-identification and what we do and i mean everyone likes to make the point for instance that oh you know there are numerous studies that in, in, in illustrate that pornography usage especially online pornography uh has that sort of like cocaine addicts habit it totally warps your neuroplasticity it hardens it it makes it very hard to break the habit to the point of where like guys can't get it up with their with real life women. And so, yeah. you know, if that's true for like porn usage, then God only knows that it's going to be that way for, you know, enhanced Twitter usage or online doom scrolling 24 seven. And yeah, I think as, as McLuhan says, it can be an extension or it can be a self amputation. And I think one of the things that McLuhan doesn't talk about in understanding media, I think he mentions it in the Gutenberg galaxy slightly but it's not so much that it's an amputation, but in a postmodern sense, it's just deterritorialization from the real space into an existing sort of newosphere, I, you know, memeplex or whatever. Like we're all in these different spaces mentally. Like, oh, I know that there are like X number of factions in this little space of mine. And I know if that if you name one or two of them, they're all going to get up and pissy and try and mass report your account or whatever. And so then you have to be very careful about how you navigate things. And then you let that language slip in real life. Like good luck explaining to somebody why like taking a Lindy walk is something that you do every Saturday <laughs> afternoon, right? Like good luck with that. And that's the way that people <laughs> are in that, in this space, which I find to be particularly interesting because you see it 
elsewhere in other online communities. It's just that we're so cut off from one another in doing that. And I'll, I'll, I'll give one anecdote and then I'll shut up. In, in that I turned off, I accidentally clicked Go Incognito on my YouTube app one time when I was trying to go um, click my settings. And one of the videos that came up when I was incognito, one was a whole just a bunch of TikTok advertisements because I pay for YouTube premium, sue me. But nice. it was this documentary about the history of quote unquote object games, which is this whole subgenre of YouTube animation where they basically take random inanimate objects and they treat them like they're real anthropomorphic and that they're in like a survivor style game show. And then the audience interacts and votes off who's, who's to leave the Island or whatever. And how like certain things have like these meta narratives or a critique of the whole genre. And these things get millions and millions and millions of views. I'm talking like 22 to like 60 million views for some of them. And it was blowing me away that such a thing exists and i had no idea that it was even a thing it was like you know just finding this random civilization out in the middle of nowhere like in the atlantic ocean and you're just like what and uh, then i just quickly turned I, I watched the whole documentary and i was just blown away that this whole subgenre of like entertainment for children and preteens or zoomers or whatever so is, is this new there. or is this like an old type of me because this is blowing my mind too I don't know. That was the thing. Cause it's like, this started in like 2015 or 2014 and it's been going on. And I was like, I had no idea it existed. But then again, I wasn't growing up during that time. I was already, uh, you know, I was already 18 going to college during those years. It was just like, this is new to me. And I just felt like I was just uncovering some uncontacted civilization that had not been entirely politicized. And it was like, Oh, there's like a refuge for political innocence. And then, uh, I quickly turned off my incognito and went back to watching a Morgoth video because I have problems, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> well, that, those well, are, that's my that's my that's my spiel. Morgoth is one of the more soothing creators in our seed, even though he can be somewhat cynical. But who doesn't like Morgoth? That's you could you could put that on TV right now and he'd, he'd make a million fucking dollars. I bet. Um, you touched on a he lot of really, could, yeah. yeah. Like Morgoth, there's a lot of guys in our scene where I'm like, if they went prime time, they could they could go you know um he could actually have a really good go of it uh you mentioned a lot of really interesting things there um one thing i'm going to circle back to uh is the you kind of mentioned about lore and you talk things like that uh, the phenomena even on a lower strata than that is the idea of the rabbit hole the idea that you can decide to just be extremely, let's just say autistic or do a deep dive on one topic and within one evening know everything there is to know about that one specific topic. Um, and that's almost like seeking out information overload. And what's interesting is you see that replicated in a lot of different areas of society. Um, binge watching would be another. And I could think of maybe even just one or two generations ago, the idea of watching like seven hours of one thing would give people migraines or they'd want to blow their brains out. Like if you, it doesn't take long to go back in time to find someone who like cannot consume media and information the same way we do right now. The idea of like, I'm just going to listen to nine hours of this podcast while I'm watching something else, or I'm going to watch an entire season of a show in one day. Like that's insane. But we do that all the time. Mid girls do that all the time. And that used to be the purview of like, <laughs> 
like of fucking Nash from A Beautiful Mind, you know. So that's that's the culture we live in of, of persistent information overload, um, and we become acclimated to it. And the real question is, can we ever? step back from that and people talk about you know everyone's got low attention spans right now yes uh the trade-off is that you can parse through more information faster whether that's good or bad depends on the information being blasted at you but it's interesting that people seek that out and in fact you mentioned there also um clue in discuss the idea of auto amputation so uh he mentioned this in the book so people don't know um this is kind of it's an interesting idea. I'm going to try and explain this as simply as I can. Um, and this is probably a good place as any to explain it. So uh, what McLuhan talks about is that media, and he uses media in a very specific way, media are extensions of ourselves. So the subtitle of the book is Understanding Media, the Extensions of Man. So what media does is it extends our immediate human senses, you know, so language is a media that we use and uh, the written word is an extension of that media. Now he can get into the weeds on that a bit where he says clothing is like an extension of the skin. You can see what he means, but sometimes he also says like wheels are a media extension of the feet. Sometimes I quibble over like that, but the, the general idea is that we extend our senses outward into the world. Um, which opens up the possibility for information overload at all times. And he basically says that anytime you extend your sense, you almost auto amputate it so it becomes numb. Anytime you make information communication or information retrieval easier, you almost need to numb yourself, like opening up, a, a, like severing a limb. Like you need to numb it. Otherwise, you'll go into shock and, and you'll pass out. You don't know what to do with that much sensation. So, he mentions that you know the age the electrical age of communication is also the age of apathy it's the age of the like, depression you know it's the age of total information submersion but also you feel nothing we feel less than we've ever felt before and like you know, another phenomenon would be you know you can make as many friends as ever before there's people with over a thousand friends on social media are those true vibrant friendships of course they're not they're they're kind of numb but that means you can have more of them in a sense so there's there's a numbing that goes along with that and interestingly um this was occurring to me as i was getting ready for the show i just kept coming back to kierkegaard um kierkegaard uh and his description of angst if angst is an idea that people they think they know but they don't really angst like oh i'm angsty i'm uncomfortable but what angst is it's the incongruity between what you feel like right now and what you think you can achieve. It's, it's like this tension. You feel like I'm not where I should be. I can conceptualize very vividly where I should be, but I'm not there. And that gives me this really, really rotten feeling. And so you could say that that comes with awareness that comes with self-awareness. And so that comes with information too. Like it's all part of the same you know, information overload and awareness building that's taken place over the past few hundred years, the past few centuries. Um, and that's so when people say, why do I feel like I, there's no reason I should feel depressed. There's no reason I should feel this numb because on paper, materially, technologically, this should be utopia, but it's not. This is not what utopia feels like. And so this, I think, at least begins to understand why you've, where you're living in kind of a, an insane paradigm right now. You're in a paradigm where 
as a human being, your senses are extended so much in every direction in instantaneous media that you kind of have to become numb to everything just to survive. Yeah, and, and McLuhan talks about this. And for those who want to understand the book that we're, we're referring to here, Understanding Media, if you are a patron channel member or Substack subscriber, you will get access to a lengthy discussion with myself and my patrons on this book when we talk about it this Saturday on the 27th. So um, by all means, reasons to, to support the channel and the work. But in the chapter, uh, chapter four, um, The Gadget Lover, Narcissus's Narcosis, uh, I'm just going to give some quotes here that I think are particularly important to that discussion. Uh, our language has expressions that indicate the self-amputation that is imposed by various pressures. We speak of wanting to jump out of my skin or of going out of my mind, being, quote, driven batty or flipping my lid. We often create artificial uh, situations that rival the irritations and stresses of real life under controlled conditions of sport and play. And for starters, you can already think of something like uh, people who like to play high stress games or, or do challenge runs on, on stream, such as uh, speedrunners or, or video game players like those who like to do Dark Souls, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, soul level one challenges that I, I have done because I think it's fun. But at the same time, it's insanely frustrating if you're doing something wrong. But we create these sort of pressures with deadlines or our ability to keep up the clout chasing or, or just to be in, quote, the discourse. But later on in the chapter, uh, he has a, a particularly interesting point here about electronic technology. And again, this was written for our our form of computers or the internet or anything like that. But uh, I'm going to read this here. Quote, with the arrival of electric technology, man extended or set outside himself a live model of the central nervous system itself. To the degree that it is so, it is a development that suggests a desperate and suicidal auto-amputation, as if the central nervous system could no longer depend on the physical organs to be protective buffers against the slings and arrows of the outrageous mechanism. It could, be, it could well be that the successive mechanicizations of various physical organs since the invention of printing have made too violent and super-stimulated a social experience for the central nervous system to endure. And uh, I'll, I'll stop there in part because I think that hits two key factors. One is, is that I think auto-amputation can also serve as an effective form of deterritorialization. We literally uproot ourselves and our culture and our understanding. This is what I call digital deracination. And we re-implant and we re-territorialize uh, these new sort of subcultures, these languages, these ideas, these perceptive worldviews. This is why even normie large account YouTubers, right, they talk about burnout. They talk about psychological stress. Some uh, very close viewers of my channel will know that I like some of those long hour video essays critiquing video games because I can put that on in the background while I work or whatever. So like Patrician TV or whatever. And he works with a guy named Private Sessions. And then all of a sudden Private Sessions has a mental breakdown and, and thank God he's better. But like, you know, he, he did the work that he was doing kind of like messed with him and it gave him anxiety attacks and so on. And so we can be overstimulated by what we do, by the notifications or balancing things out or just muting every tweet that we send out on the air but at the same time, especially what I find interesting as a, as a Christian is, is that when I hear outside of itself, I hear the word discarnate. We are no longer living physical in the world. We're, we're living as an extension of the discarnate or the extension of the incarnate world and not focusing on incarnate things, i.e. the incarnate word of God, the logos, the God man. And now we're living in a space outside of that self. 
sort of this weird sort of mechanical thaumaturgy that tells me, uh, you know, I can I can exist in this space outside of space, and I can conduct conversation and be exposed to people that I shouldn't have been able to communicate with until more recently. I, I, you know, like we can see machine elves or whatever when we take these drugs, but when I take the digital drug, yeah, I see machine elves and demons all the time. I see people signing up for Ayala's birthday orgy on my timeline and I get really depressed. <laughs> well, you mentioned a lot of good things there. Um, and, and one thing, uh, just a quote from the book again, and to maybe circle back so people really understand what we're talking about, uh, electricity is a central theme of the book and it's important it's easy to overlook electricity and the importance of electricity uh because we live our lives surrounded by electricity all the time but um i think McLuhan would have lived in an era where computers were coming up and like he would have passed away before obviously the internet as we know it but i think he he saw what was coming with computers um but i always would love to hear what he would say about them now but in terms of electricity, um, what electricity did, and this really hasn't, it hit the, what he says in the book is no one has really stopped to really apprehend the importance of electricity on our mind and how we process information. So what does he mean by that? Well, prior to electricity, um, you, you still had the Industrial Revolution. You still had the mechanization process. And the Industrial Revolution was another paradigm shift to the human mind where we started, everyone started to think more logically. We were very, very process driven, but also very linear. So we could think in very complex processes. And we the, the average citizen was demanded of to you know absorb this new way of thinking of process driven stuff into their everyday lives however what electricity did was it destroyed that process entirely made everything instantaneous so the idea that everything can be operating all at once was like another paradigm shift that really changed and like younger generations kind of get this it's less a b c d and more of an interconnected complex matrix like you even mentioned there like you know electronic machine elves in parallel dimensions the average person can apprehend really the idea of interdimensional communication from entities is something even like your mom understands. There was a time when no one would understand that, but you know, the average person could actually comprehend the, the the concept of a multiverse and play around with that, even in Marvel movies. And it's, it's, it's not just ABCD. It's like this interconnected, some things change other things, but you can keep a lot of those plates spinning in the air. So electricity, and I don't think that's, McLuhan was like one of the first guys to really say that changed how we do everything. Um, and a lot of ideologies were birthed by like Marxism, fascism, a lot of these emerged from the industrial revolution. I don't think there's really been an ideology or a really any sort of, system that's emerged from the information revolution like we're still playing with 19th and 20th century ideas that don't really you know work in this new instantaneous paradigm this deterritorialized paradigm um, and there's a quote here like there's another quote from the book um i'll just read it quickly if you don't mind he says the greatest of all reversals occurred with the electricity that ended sequence by making things instant. With instant speed, the causes of things began to emerge to awareness again. 
just before an airplane breaks the sound barrier, sound waves become visible on the wings of the plane. The sudden visibility of sound, just as sound ends, is an apt instance of the great pattern of, of being that reveals new and opposite forms just as earlier forms reach their peak performance. He says, in the electric age, this is what you were saying before, in the electric age, when our central nervous system is technologically extended to the whole of mankind and to incorporate the whole of mankind in us, we necessarily participate in depth in the consequences of our every action. It's no longer possible to adopt the aloof and disassociated role of the literate Westerner. So I really like those two lines that shows like the sea change of the electric age that I still don't think most people have really appreciated. And what do you think about that? I think the point that you make about playing around with 19th, 18th and 20th century ideas in the midst of this new technology is innately true. I mean, there's a certain class of, and I don't want to say class, probably the wrong word. There are certain, I guess, group or faction or in, individuals that are more focused on things about, uh, you know, complex systems or how, how do we adapt to a, a constant changing level of institutions, ideas, technologies that mean that things are not abiding by 20th or 19th century models of government or communication or propaganda, which I think is innately true. I mean, the, the question that was posed one time in a, in a Morgoth video to reference him again, and the, my comment earlier wasn't to to uh, to denigrate him. I just listened to a lot of his old content for and, and sometimes to try and get a writer's block. But it was uh, he was having this conversation about the idea of posing what would happen if a place like Google the company wanted to declare war on a country. And, you know, we have that sort of played out in this, uh, in this sort of science fiction world a lot where of cyberpunk or of, uh, I don't know that one, uh, call of duty game with Kevin Spacey, I guess, uh, advanced warfare or something like that, where it's played in the near future. I played that like, one. I, I didn't play it. I, I really stopped playing call of duty. I think after the black ops, but that's, uh, uh whole other conversation for another time but uh, you know i, I know that uh, the u.s military works very closely with them i'm sure darpa works very closely with them so that's a fun way to look at where that game might have been predictive uh, programming but uh you know it was a fun question that he posed because that's kind of a reality to some extent like He's like Microsoft or Google doing, but taking advantage of various nation states tax havens that those nations governments put up to have them there, right? And to have the benefit while at the same time, they're constantly going to war with places like the European Union who loves to, to regulate these things and how well do they hold up in court versus like how easy it might be to, to take advantage of America's legal system and, and, you know, find ways to screw over the consumer, your metadata or whatever. And I think that that's very true is that we don't, have the capability of being aware of what kind of world we live in uh or, or we just take it for granted we just say oh it is what it is find it absolutely mind-blowing and i mean my twitter engagement is, is, is shit because i always uninstall the app and i don't think very much during the weekends and i do that very deliberately it's a form of a thesis to be on it 24 7 but you know and this isn't a humble brag or anything it's like twenty four thousand people follow my twitter account that's an insane number, orders of magnitude higher than Dunbar's number. My brain has these compartmentalized spaces where I can recognize regular members of chat 
or someone, or I even met this person in real life at a conference once. He's like, oh, I'm so-and-so. I'm alien robot anthropologist. And I'm like, I remember you because you're one of the first people that ever commented on my channel like three and a half years ago. That's a crazy thing that my brain should not know in comparison to the fact that I know dozens uh, and dozens more people in real life uh, trying to make it sound really hard. Like I have a thriving social life. I mean, I do, but it's like, <laughs> It's it's crazy that my brain has this dualism to it where I can like turn off online brain or try to turn off online brain and then turn on offline in real life brain because we're, we work very closely to not tell people too much about our like real life personal details. Like I say, I live in the middle of nowhere, but I also say that I live in Texas and and I also, you know, try and make sure that people don't know exactly where I'm at because you don't want like your your online life crossing too over much into your real life. And that, I, so I think unless you're part of it or you take the time to seriously think about it, I think you're at, that McLuhan is right. Even, you know, 60 plus years ago that we take for granted this awareness. And some people are just blissfully unaware because either they were raised in it or that's just the culture and they've been programmed uh, and conditioned psychologically to just accept the terms of how it is some people i've noticed kind of fit very naturally as just passive consumers whereas others want to be the, the reply guy they want to be the thread guy they want to be the I, i'm going to find a specific weird niche and that's going to be my thing and it will be my space because i want to conquer this intangible digital space because it is mine because i to some extent i think that bronze age pervert is very right man wants to claim and take up space and where other place to do that in the 21st century, in part because no one's doing like rebellion or insurrection or we're not like joining the French Foreign Legion, right, to go kill Algerians or whatever. Instead, we're, we're trying to ratio like the Sunday Times or we're trying to ratio <laughs> Trudeau or there's this guy called Middle Earth Mixer on Twitter that always puts a picture of Gondor ripping a Peter to like ratio like news journalists and such like that's that's <laughs> the that's space and this and because our social media stuff to, to reference the book one more time is so gamified our awareness of these things uh, affect us so McLuhan says and this is in the chapter uh, on games games then are contrived in a controlled situation extensions of group awareness that permit a respite from customary patterns they are a kind of talking to itself on the part of society as a whole on the talking to oneself is a recognized form of play that is indispensable from the to any growth of self-confidence. The British and the Americans have enjoyed during recent times an enormous self-confidence born of the playful spirit and the fun of games. When they sense an absence of this spirit in their rivals, it causes embarrassment. To take mere worldly things in dead earnest betokens a defect of awareness that is pitiable. And again, it's a very Anglo sense of like, oh, we, we like games. You know, we, we I think the only other group that really enjoy games as much as we do, maybe the Japanese and the Koreans in a digital sense. But we love our organized sport. We love our cricket. We love our football. We love our American football. We love our our golf, our, our hockey, etc. Because it's a way to identify with another group that isn't necessarily ours. Like, you know, my, my dad's side of the family is from Green Bay, Wisconsin. They all live there. So everyone, by nature of my own birth... I am innately a Green Bay Packers fan, even though I'm not really a big NFL guy. And the fact that our digital world is incredibly gamified and they're designed on purpose to be gamified. 
we're in these contrived but very controlled situations. We have a TOS that we like to often skirt the line of what kind of weird stuff can we say on Twitter? You can't say, well, you can on Elon's Twitter now advocate for something like, I don't know, traditional neighborhood development. But, you know, you also know that you maybe can't say that somewhere else in the same way that depending on what we say, you know, that can get us banned. But it's not these respite from customary worldly patterns because it's not it's not a respite in in fact this other space these controlled and contrived situations actually affect the real world in a very uh linguistic and very spatial sense of where discourse and ideas are conceptualized i mean that's why it was such a big deal for right-wing twitter to have their tweets read off on air when tucker carlson was still working at fox news and so i think that that, that's a big thing that I don't think we've even talked like the, the not just the right in general, but I mean people in general. Outside of a few papers written by, um, <laughs> like the Atlantic Council or the Santa Fe Institute, where we do live in a very gamified world, and that's something that I don't think people realize outside of I think. Well, I mean, I think Frody kind of gets into it when he talks about like nationalist Narnia because he kind of knows how actually this stuff is the real world. But when you're on the internet, you know, like oh, I can like tell some tranny on twitter like you'll never be a real woman or whatever and they're like yeah yeah i did the thing i owned the libs and then well you really didn't because like your country's still being invaded by third worlders <laughs> if you don't mind me asking what's the nationalist narnia concept if it's the same frody that i'm because i interviewed frody it, it is, it is. You, just, oh, yeah. you just talk to him um no i uh the whole nationalist narnia is the, the idea and i'm gonna butcher because i haven't talked to frody in a hot minute but uh, his nationalist Narnia was just like we 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 use the internet to sort of like propagate our ideas, and then we don't do anything in the real world, oh, yeah. and that we think what we do online, like that's all that we have to do, and so people can be very unserious and live in a world where oh yes, like starting tomorrow, this account at you know like Iron Iron Groiper fourteen eighty eight or whatever is like I'm gonna like deport all of the migrants, and it's just like but you're not right, and like you're gonna log off and you're gonna go to your shitty wage cage, um, or you're gonna like tweet on company time, and and that's sort of his criticism, and I think that that's the acknowledgement that we live in this very gamified system. But I've been rambling for far too long. You can't interrupt me, Dimes. You can't no, interrupt me. Because you said so many good things, and I don't want whenever I interrupt or anyone interrupts, they lose their train. And they got like seven things I wanted to comment on there, but I think I'll comment on the last part because I know I'm going to forget this, and I don't know where to fit this part in. So now's as good time as any. There's this book I was reading recently that I'm just about finished. I'm going to talk about it on my show, Blood Satellite. Uh, it's called Decadence by Jim Haugen. This was written in the 70s. Um, and I, a, f- a fan of the show, a friend of the show sent me a hardcover copy. It's not the easiest book to find, but, uh, this guy was a journalist and he was written writing on the counterculture of the sixties. So this would have been the boomer generation. Um, people think they know what that was. It was hippies. Maybe they heard Huntress Thompson talk about that time, but it's a lot more complex than people think. I'm not going to explain the entire thing right now, but the one part he was talking about was the concept of cultural decadence um, because what had happened was I'll, I'll just say this, the dissident rights, what the broad milieu that we're in right now is almost line for line and beat for beat 
what the counterculture movement in the 60s was, including where it ended up right before it fizzled out, which was people saying, we need to create a parallel society. We need to go off grid. We got to start building compounds. There was an anarcho-primitivism. There was a fascination with reading old books and mysticism and esoteric stuff. There was a lot that was very, very similar. And of course, the interest is, well, how, how did that fail? Because that seems to be parallel to this. Now, there's a couple of reasons why it failed. But one thing he had mentioned was, um, in they failed for the same reason we're probably going to fail, and because we're stuck in this sort of cultural decadence, because we understand that the society is too big and too powerful to really affect with any sort of internal revolution, barring a total collapse, which is unlikely. So we enter into this this meta life. We become every single one of us sort of pathologize our self-awareness that the the life of a westerner right now and he gives a great anecdote about this later in the book he says you know i was fed up with america i had to get out you have to do what every white guy wants to do you got to get out of your homeland and just go where the natives are so he goes to ibiza or as they call it, ibiza but i don't like pronouncing it like that so it's ibiza and he goes there and again this is in the 70s no internet right but he goes there and he's fascinated that that entire island, no one's got a phone. They don't really give a shit about what's going on in the outside world. But And you would think that would make them culturally dead. Quite the opposite. It's crackling with energy and gossip and communication. And people are lively. There's a different sort of energy there that he falls in love with for a minute. And then he realizes, he's like, I, I can't exist in this culture because this culture doesn't know how to stand outside of itself. He being a Western man, a white American, he can only understand culture as something you stand outside of, like we all do. And I'm sure, you know, if Gio Pinochetti is listening to this, which he should be, um, he would understand like everything is a meta commentary. Every meme we have to remove it. What does this mean in relation to something else? We overanalyze everything because that's all we really have left. And that's what became of the boomers and the counter-revolution. It became commoditized and commodified too fast and that barring any sort of collapse you're saying that the only thing we can really bring to the table is intense sort of meta analysis of the culture itself and that becomes the only culture and that's fascinating when you consider like what is the cable news like within my lifetime cable news media became a giant cultural organism to talk about the news media itself. Isn't that weird? Isn't it weird how much the news media talks about itself all the time and meta analyzes what the pundits are doing? Like it, it's, it, it's pathological. It's, it's an insane way to live, but we actually wouldn't know how to live if we were deposited in any previous culture. I um, mean, part of that goes along with, Psycho, the development of psychoanalysis in the West that we keep also psychoanalyzing ourselves. You can't just be, everyone has to have some kind of mental illness, but that's almost a different uh, tangent entirely. Um, one, but before I go on, what do you think about that? Cause I have a couple other points based on what you said. What do you think about that thing I just said? I, I, <laughs> I think that there's a, a point where you, even this space itself has people that are offering commentary. I mean, what is e-drama, right? What uh, we love to talk about drama. We love to talk about fights, and in part because it's just like it's it's quite it's quasi theatrical, right? To borrow the, the pro wrestling kayfabe stuff, but like also, you know, why is it that people like and this isn't to shit on them or anything? I just find the the whole thing fascinating. Why is it that people like PPP and Andy Worski on the like Kino Casino can make? thousands of dollars a stream 
talking about drama and talking about and talking the, about the people who talk about drama. Too. Yes. Yes. In the same way that the news media talks about the people who talk about the news media, which happens to be like Rachel Maddow, who works like three blocks down the street, in the same like area in New York or whatever, in MSNBC's office or whatever. Right. Like that's a very, we're replicating the same phenomenon. Also, I think that you're very much right that we are a lot like new age, old left progressive hippies from like the new left of the fifties and sixties that was, listen, we're not communists. We don't like them, but we're also like not righties either uh, to some extent, but also we know that communists ended up winning um, both world war two and the cold war. So like, well, and also let me just pause you there. And one of the things he points out in the book, again, not to spoil it, listen to blood satellite, but the, <laughs> the, the point of the book is like the countercultural movement was actually this really complex social upheaval. It was like an ecosystem of a lot of different things that was, in effect, hijacked by the new left. And he said it really the conflagration for them was Vietnam and they tried to put their stamp on everything. But he's like, if you look at how the counter revolution, like what was it? It was like an interest in Eastern mysticism. It was a rejection of a lot of the news media. It was a lot of just things that seemed to spontaneously happen that if you ask people now, it's like, oh, yeah, that was a leftist thing. Not really. They just have a tendency, as all communists do, to try and like put their stamp on the shit people are doing themselves and, and, and corral it into the same space. And that's one of the things that killed it, essentially. That they, they tried to politicize what was a genuine and decentralized populist reaction to the, the modern American post-war lifestyle that's how he described it at least well i i'm sort of cripping from sam batch because you're not the first person to make that point and maybe if he's gotten it from the same book i don't know but i this is the reason why i tell people to read people like um william appleman williams who would be part of that movement uh, and if you read him nowadays, you're like, oh, he kind of reads like a leftist. But no, he is reacting to the American way of life, although and, and also America's foreign policy and empire. He's got two great books, The Tragedy of American Diplomacy and Empire's a Way of Life, where he totally shuts down like the, the boomer con quasi libertarian myth that, you know, we, we don't want foreign wars. And it's like, no, America's always been like this, like really cool swashbuckling white man filibustering like his neighbors. And it's like awesome. But at the same time, like that isolationism yeah. is a total myth. But our good friend Clossington has a lot to say on that. Yes, he does. Yes. Oh, yeah. his, 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 his history article on the history of American filibustering is very good. And I highly recommend that people read that over on the, not old only would I recommend that I would say that's one of the more, important geopolitical substacks that's come out of our scene. Some people might think that's too grandiose, but there's a lot that's bound up in that substack over, let's just say, a lot of people that might be getting more play. Not you, but some other people I won't name. If I won't name them, why'd I even say it? I don't know. Anyway, continue. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> no, well, the reason why I say that Williams is actually someone I think really important to read on this quote-unquote dissident right. And how much? And the question is, is like those guys were somewhat of an organic reaction whereas how much of ourselves right are perhaps byproducts of algorithmic programming uh, prior to the shutdown of maybe that quote-unquote pipeline the one thing that the, the, the liberals of the in 2017 state and society report was is that there was a pipeline from like libertarian atheist skepticism stuff to uh, what at the time was called the alt-right like they were correct about that the, the don't think anyone would tell you that that isn't the case because when i see people in the comments section 
talking about where they started versus where they are now. I, I see a, a confirmation of that concern that there was a, a quote unquote pipeline. But the, um, I do see a lot of people who get upset and they fight with all these other groups that are sort of reacting to say the spirit of the age or, or what Jimmy Carter would have called the great malaise or what the Southern agrarians would have criticized our sort of consumer capitalist cultures. And I'll take my stand, which I think even non uh, Southerners should read and even non-Americans as well. I think you would find it fascinating, but when you look at those guys and even ourselves, like you see these, all these little disparate groups sort of coming to conclusions where the path that we're currently on sucks but we also sound like progressive hippies. Like, you know, 20 years ago, the whole raw milk thing was definitely a, a, a hipster, like new age wine mom would have done, right? <laughs> Pacific Northwest. But nowadays, it's just a bunch of like hulked out six foot three white guys that are like, yeah, I, I sun my balls and I drink raw milk because like screw the system. And we do have this countercultural thing to it all, which is funny when you hear that the national review for like the last 30 years has been saying like, Oh yeah. Like conservatism is the new punk rock. And it's like your brand of conservatism was never the new punk rock. Ours is like petty link cola meets Ted Kaczynski, but meets Nick land. And it's this weird mishmash. It's mind of bending. Oh, absolutely. And because we're, we're simultaneously uh, amputating our, our sense of self away from say, and to some extent, this is kind of funny, right? Like we say blood, like some people on the right will be like very hardcore identitarian and they'll be like very much blood and soil. But at the same time, the conceptualization of, of blood and soil in 2024, to some extent, not all, um, before I get a whole bunch of people yelling at me in the comment section, a lot of it is though online, which is deterritorialized from the actual land that you're on. And so this is where you end up like scratching, quote unquote, like base conquistador, you know, tw you know, four, 15, 18 or whatever. And then all of a sudden, like you look behind the account and you realize that some guy from Colombia talking about how we need to save the West or whatever. Yeah. And, and it's a strange place to be in because that amputation that McLuhan talks about also is a great signifying tool of empire. Because I had this conversation with Conscious Caracol like two and a half years ago, Ernst Van Sile over at Afriform. And he had told me that he says, I found it really weird one time. I was walking downtown and I saw someone, South African boar, looks like me, you know, probably has, we probably know each other some way somehow, but he's speaking into his phone in perfect Americanized English. And, you know, referring <laughs> to things in it with American mannerisms. And I was like, that's a really impressive like way to like of imperial hege hegemony in terms of like cultural soft power type deal, like language and tools and mannerisms and media. And that's sort of America's greatest export is its soft power cultural stuff, which has its own. If you want to uh, if you want to talk about some three letter acronyms for what that could be, by all means, be my guest. But like when you're <laughs> exporting like gay race communism or like the global, you know, like or the American race system, as Curtis Yarvin likes to call it, you can call it something else if you want. But it does illustrate, I think, to me, and I'll, I'll finish your point here, is just that even how you said it, Ibiza, right? And they call it what, Abithia, right? Like, who do we have to blame for that? Well, we, we can blame that songwriter and singer, Mike Posner, right? He took a pill in Ibiza. <laughs> it's the only reason why I know of that place's existence initially until I, I, I read up on where that place actually is. And because we are these people who enjoy games, we live in sort of gamified systems, we have this sort of self-pride and this sense of self that expands 
and we look at other people differently. Like before we went on the air, we were like, well, who else thinks in such a metatextual kind of way? Who thinks in this, this metaphysical understanding of the world outside of like the very technologically advanced Westerners and the Asiatic countries that were Westernized after World War II? And that to me, you know, like if we, there's people that want to return and there is sort of a, a techno skeptical undercurrent to a lot of people in the dissident right. Some are techno optimists. There are different camps, but the techno skeptics kind of want to go back to some kind of Abithia style culture where like they have something, they can talk about it in the same way. I think people are desperate because they, they feel unhappy, right? Like we were saying. But when they try and go somewhere else that maybe hasn't experienced that quote-unquote first contact with electricity or first contact with the digital, they're still strangers, even in that world that they tried to achieve. And um, not to not to crap on some people in, in, in religious spaces, but I mean, uh, it's very interesting, especially as myself, I, I, am, uh, I am a convert to Eastern Orthodoxy, but like, uh, listening to other people who are in the online spaces of that religion, which I avoid um, with some rare exceptions. And to see people who are walking into a religion that never experienced the Renaissance or the enlightenment, try and make sense of their own like Western Anglo identities that are a product of the enlightenment and are a product of the Renaissance and the reformation, and then try and force themselves theologically back in time. It's very interesting. And we see that with all sorts of things, not just in religion, but politics as well. Yeah. No, if anyone needs help translating that, Jay Dyer, your days are numbered. Now. <laughs> you have one year. <laughs> yeah, you have one year. No, you, you mentioned a lot of really, really fascinating things there. And um, one of the things you had mentioned was uh, sort of wanting to go back. And there's this the this thread that's been woven through a lot of things I've been reading recently, which is that nostalgia and advocating for nostalgia can be the most politically expedient. It's easy to put on a placard. It's easy to make a slogan out of, but it might be the least relevant and the least achievable to actually go back to a previous time, even if it's like America in the 1950s. However, that's very emotionally potent. So ironically, that's the stuff that's but easier to advocate for. Twitter dimes. Nostalgia is the gateway to fascism. Exactly. Well, that's, and th this is the, the, the space you gotta live in because it's this is why i was trying to say now you mentioned sort of the idea of blood and soil and i want to just recontextualize that for people because they a lot of alarm bells ring when they say that but i'm like well it's not it is a more fascist adjacent but it really is just you could explain this if it came from the mouth of a black person they would say well my my lineage and my family and my kinfolk are important to me <clears throat> that's the blood and the look, I have a tie to the location that they fought and died for. And I am birthed from that environment. And if you take me out of that environment, I'm less comfortable. Like an African person is less comfortable in Canada. Canada is full of Indians right now. They're all fucking miserable. It's not a good environment for them um, unless you have a lot of money to insulate yourself from the sort of environment that we walk around in a T-shirt in. Right. <clears throat> but there's an interesting idea in there. And I'm going to mention another book that I read. So I got something in my throat. There's this book I read. Speaking of Indians, this book is titled The Network State. Unforgivably Indian name. I'm going to try and read it. Balaji Srinivasan. Anyway, very smart guy. Very great book. The Network State. 
kind of addresses what you're just talking about, about deterritorialization and sort of retribalization <clears throat> in an online space. It's a book I would recommend people read because you can read it for free. If you look up the network state, you can find this PDF or read it on the website. It's a very NRX styled book. It's very much, I don't know if he's associated with Yarvin and Bap and all them, but it seems so using a lot of the same terminology. He uses the word LARPing in a serious way, which always bothered me. Anyway, he's talking about how <clears throat> moving forward, you can have groups that exist in an online space essentially create a new nation state. And it's trying to figure out how do we leverage this reality that we are all deterritorialized and there still exists this concept of blood and soil, this traditional nationalistic stuff in this sort of digital diaspora. You know, and you had mentioned earlier the the phenomena of meeting people in real life. And that's an interesting thing because I, I do want to clarify before I think people make it sound like you're like pushing back or I know you said recontextualizing. I'm not saying that the the blood and soil idea is purely online. I, I am saying though it has a sense of where it is spread out to where it's not just no. like into one location. It's totally real. I just ranted about it on the last episode of the Digital Archipelago yeah. where I'm walking through you know, the historical sites of Philadelphia. And I'm like, my ancestors were here. Like, that's yeah. what I, I believe and in that, it, you know, in that sense that it's real and it's in there. I'm, I hold the sensibilities. Yeah. Oh, and that's what I'm saying for people. It's like, it is real to people because people hear blunt. So like, oh, you mean your online stuff? No, but it is real. That is a real phenomenon. Both, both exist. Yeah. And also there is, you're, you're kind of anchoring yourself in this understanding of blood and soil, but you are living in a digital diaspora trying to figure out a way to reclaim that in some sense. And you had mentioned uh, the, the phenomena of, um, I should stop saying the word phenomena, but like meeting people in real life that you met online. Now there was an older form of social media. This was like original Twitter, which is like, I'm an individual and I can broadcast my thoughts to the world. That is not enticing to young people now, or even me as a millennial. Um, the idea of, of just, I want the world to hear my opinions. No one wants to do that. What they do is create online communities. And this has been trending from a marketing perspective. This has been the trend for the past couple of generations, more closed communities and closed systems. So what you're finding is the traditional idea of, oh, you've got internet friends, strangers you met online. People are brokering real friendships and connections online and translating that to the real world. Um, on one hand, that's Tinder, obviously. There's the dating hookup site. But then there's also like these kinship networks that are emerging. And they might start with, let's say, ethnic-based. They might also be ideology-based. They might be religious-based for people that are geographically disparate but can kind of come together. And that's as real as anything. And that's grounded in an old blend soil idea. But they do know how to exist very, very strongly as an online diaspora. Furthermore, they know how to translate that to the real world. And that's something that I've seen emerge over my lifetime that I think is really exciting. And that's kind of what the Network State book is about. It's like, how can you create these online communities and make them real to the extent of actually creating sort of a constitution and buying land? So now you're a community that owns, you're a tribe. This is how <clears throat> you retribalize in an online space. There is a schematic for people to do that. When I spoke to Frody, this is what he was always talking about, retribalization. You hear that a lot. You also hear that in McLuhan when he says that 
the um, <clears throat> electricity and the electronic world has retribalized the Western mind. We were a very solitary, literate for type of people. Now we're forced to retribalize. We're forced into this communal awareness that, but still with the memory of being a literate people. So it's not like you're devolving into an oral tradition. You're no, it's the orientalization of the Western mind. This was the the great fusion that McLuhan was talking about, where yeah, we would be exposed to Oriental uh, symbolic pictographic, not as literate with oral traditions based upon, you know, the tribalization or communities. And now those two things are coming together and have come together because YouTube, if you remember the early days of YouTube, the, the motto that came when you went to youtube.com was broadcast yourself. And if you were to Google the word YouTube today, it just says, share your videos with friends, family in the world. There is no motto anymore. Um, it is just about, um, you know, have a place to join even the youtubers themselves say you know join the community i have a discord link in the description and you can talk about whatever there is right and even when there's drama um to to make reference for instance like when that h bomber guy this norwooding leftist gives this long video about <laughs> plagiarism and blah 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 and people hop on that train about plagiarism although it was it was wonderfully timed because little did h bomber guy know that just like three days later you know claudine gay would be accused of plagiarism by a bunch of disaffected rich jews uh who are concerned about the state of uh, anti-semitic protesting and pro hamas protesting inside these ivy league college campuses but it does uh, um the how people reacted to it was talking about my community would call me out for that my fans would call me out for that and people who get in these fights would say things like don't leverage you know your ability to block commenters because my community wants to defend itself from your attacks or something like that and so yeah we are retribalized in a very gamified way where like oh if i ratio you on the internet you know like that means i won right like it's or the meme that people like to say it's too late i've depicted you as the soy jack and myself as the giga chad right like we're using these very <laughs> uh mythopoetic pictographic representations of self that are extensions of who we think that we actually are and this is why people love to just quote tweet uh, ugly liberal academics on Twitter with their profile pictures because we can just look at them, see a physically unattractive person and know that I can disregard that person's opinion because they are ugly. And so yeah. because we have these, and I don't want to say that they're, that they're like pre like Christian or that they're like ancient, or I, I think that these are just long standing things that as enlightenment, uh, post-enlightenment men in the west we kind of try and do that whole argument for ideas type deal like oh it's the ideas that matter it doesn't matter that like milton friedman or murray rothbard look like caricatures of a certain ethnic group that would even have like goebbels being like come on man i can't print that <laughs> like, it, it, and, and, but you listen to their ideas and you find them interesting whereas nowadays we just like can totally disregard their ideas of the counter signal us based on their their views and i mean you see this in ancient literature i mean you see this in even the, in the work of numerous uh church fathers where they'll, they'll describe their opponents as spiritually and physically ugly and we we do that still now right we've returned to the tribalized world and for some people i think that freaks them out to a degree that 
whatever came before uh, the, the sort of Western idea is of, of what man is, is, is under attack, not just in the demographic sense of the word, but also in sort of the metaphysical that we we've lost track of who we are. And there are, I think, three pathways that people have sort of generated answers to that question, although they're all inherently tribal. Um, I, I think that you see this in sort of three groups in the metaphysical level. You see sort of like the vitalist, you know, new kind of technology, new gods, new return to old energy, you know, like be strong, be sexy, you know, the, the, the fuck rate must increase type people. And then on the other hand, you have like the neo-pagans, like clearly like Nietzsche was right, the genealogy of morals, like if we hold on to these stronger, um, like ethno-religious conceptualizations of ourselves and our belief systems, like we can lose, you know, become something that is going to survive in ways that will not survive like the the post reformation post enlightenment or even post you know even the post two uh, circa Z, circa 0 AD world and will manage right and then of course you have the christians that are like clearly have answers they're referring back to scripture they're referring back to church tradition and are fighting the pause inside of their own institutions and churches and i yeah. think because these things are all happening both in the real world and in the digital spaces you're you're realizing that you know even though yes some of these ideas or some of these uh belief systems are thousands and thousands of years old they feel new despite the fact that you know they they do have a very tangible timeline where we can trace their history their entomology the development of doctrines etc and it, we're in a world where as you had said, we're trying to just survive this position. So like, oh yeah, the network state, can we like, you know, the startups are cool, but can we start up a country? And that's trying to challenge 19th and 20th century concepts of what the nation state is, despite the fact that honest to God, America doesn't have sovereignty. I, I mean, like we can talk about, oh yeah, like US government can collect taxes and has a military. But if America wanted to go to war with Mexico, it would have to be conscientious and aware of the fact and just accept it that you know half your service members are probably going to end up like cartel beheading videos from like live leaks <laughs> 2012 because they're all over the border towns and they're all over in the major metropolitan areas and all it takes is for one libtard to dox a u.s drone operator and that u.s drone operator's family has just been executed by the sonola cartel because america decided to go commit a special military operation on the southern border and to make a long story short with this whole point is is that we're in a position where we're trying to find ways in this age of both awareness and unconscious awareness where we're both deterritorialized but aware of things like blood and soil and how do we adopt them for the mediums? And how do we adapt the ideas and beliefs in a world where, you know, it, well, I think there was a famous insult that Foucault had used on someone like you're, you're, you're an, a 19th century philosopher living in the 20th. And <laughs> that's where we're at. We're trying to take these old ideas and we're trying to hurriedly carry them onto Noah's Ark of the digital age. Like here's the floodgates. They're opening. God has said you are going to die. Uh, try and take everything that you can and take it onto the digital arc. Yeah. And, and one thing that is the reason we're doing that is because people are scrambling to find a solution that isn't just accelerationism, which is the idea ideology of let's just speed towards collapse. Cause the only thing I see is collapse. 
There's a lot of people in our space. They're you know toying around the edges of how can we create something new that doesn't involve total fucking cataclysm. And you had just mentioned something there I wanted to note about um you know showing people's profile pictures and everyone everyone in the world doing a physiognomy check. Uh, once again, it is the convergence of far right schizos and mean girls. Uh, and I've commented before that if you look at your average sort of dissident right chat, it's almost indistinguishable from a bunch of fucking broads. Because like, what are we talking about? The importance of having a lot of kids. Uh, we're trading recipes and it's fitness tips. We're just a bunch of fucking girls sometimes. <laughs> but then it's like, yeah, are you ugly? Are you? Then I'm not listening to you. You're weird. You're ick. Like we have the guy version of the ick every time we look at a philosopher who's fat. Um, but there is, there's something there. There actually is something, you know, the, the idea that the enlightenment idea of like, it, all that matters is the ideas. It doesn't matter where they're coming from. You know, I was reading a uh, E. Michael Jones recently. He had this really great book called Logos Rising. I know he's a Catholic, but I think you could forgive him for that. Um, and he talked about, he was talking more about a lot of the Marxist thinkers and a lot of the sort of deconstructualists, you know, they, their ideologies emerge from their lives. And he was making the case that, you know, if, if you live sort of a degenerate lifestyle, you will pr propose a degenerate ideology to explain the world. Um, and, and you can see that in people like, you know, Foucault and others. Um, I, I think there is some truth to that. So a lot of us are asking like, okay, this idea is good. Does it map onto reality? Like you've got a nice ideology, you know, this is, I was talking about this with, um, I think it was disgraced propagandist on an episode we recorded, like I know BAP and soul bra, they kind of doxed themselves recently. And I'm like, you know what? Like their entire ideologies would have been thrown in the trash if they were short, fat and ugly. But the fact that they actually are, you know, tall and they, they look like they work out. I'm like, then people take them seriously. But the fact of the matter is if you're short, fat and ugly, most people will say, like, oh, this is your ideology, your worldview has not resulted in anything for you. Either you're a hypocrite or you don't take it seriously or it leads to you. It's in some way associated with where it generated from. And so we don't take it seriously. Sounds unfair, but I think there's more people broadly interested in like, OK, how does this idea map onto reality? Because that's all we're interested in right now. And especially on the, the our side of things where it's like, yes, we talk about retribalization. Yes, we talk about the importance of community. What does that mean? Give me the schematic. Step one, two, three, four. What the fuck do you mean? And that's the project that even I'm engaged in. I'm like, OK, we need to retribalize. What does that look like? Does that involve like a pastoral? Do we need to return to the 15th fucking century? Like, tell me this. Tell me your plan. Do you have a plan to create a parallel society? And not a lot of people do. A few do. I've heard a few guys, even like Christopher Cantwell came up with one where it's like, here's how you take over a small town with you and your guys. Who are your guys? Maybe people you've met online, whatever system you gathered, like 10 to 15 people. And this is sort of what we were talking about before. Like, how do you create these communities? How do you create these online diasporas? Well, that's up to you. And what's interesting is that... <clears throat> In a lot of ways, especially younger people, were these kaleidoscopes of identities that all seem to be leveled right now. What we're trying to do is rank the importance of them. Like your ethnicity is one part of your identity. Then your race as well. Those two are different, but also your religion. Also, you know, your home and like the idea of like you're an Irish American. Do you feel also at home in Ireland? Which is your homeland? You need to negotiate that, right? Same thing with any other arab asian whatever it might be then there's your ideology on top of that then there's all these 
we might call them fandoms. Some people would dismiss them as fandoms, but these are the very distinct and profound ways we kind of identify ourselves and they're multitudinous more than any time in the past. So if you're making a community, you got to figure out which people you align with. But once you do that, you can actually come together and work on a project. And that's what we're talking about right now. It's more real world ideas. And maybe a lot of the ideological stuff gets left in the past. However, what we're talking about right now is how will these communities actually work and function because they won't work and function like the 19th and 20th centuries. And we're living in unprecedented times and you need to fix that word to the fucking cerebral cortex, unprecedented. There's things you can take from the past. I have a lot of pagans who listen to our show, a lot of Christians, a lot of atheists, a lot of different ethnicities. And they, they're trying to, figure out how to take these anchors that are important to them, but adapt them to where they need to be in the future. And it involves asking some hard questions, but it doesn't involve recreating the past. And the ones who are paying attention, they're the ones who know that. Yeah, I would agree with that wholeheartedly that we are in, everyone is trying to adapt what they think is true, good and beautiful to the, an age where, I, I can go on on Twitter and I can say something and some, you know, jerk off from Brazil will say that that's dumb and here's why. And uh, this is also why I tell people time and time again that I think your whole soul bra thing was a very good point. Like if, if he like had like an ugly face or he was he was not jacked that no one would take his his shtick seriously and they would call him a LARPer because on his Instagram, he posted a picture of like an eagle with a sonnen rat. It's like, everyone knows what you look like now, bro. Like everyone's going to call you a <laughs> LARPer or whatever. And that's why I tell people all the time. I said, listen, when you, when you turn your phone off at night and you look at the reflection of your face in the screen and you don't like what you see, this is time for you to, to wake up and to do something, you know, as St. Seraphim Rose says, it is later than you think. Therefore hasten to do the work of God. Like, you, you know, it is later than you think, you know, you, you don't have to be a fat, ugly, you know, uh, piece of garbage to, to live your life. Right. And that and again, this is why there has been such a renewed emphasis. I don't know if it's entirely feminine or maybe it's the consequences of living in a more feminized society. But, you know, I think that it is good that people are exchanging health tips or focusing on civilizational questions like children and child rearing. I mean. The, the fact is, is that there was a great book that was published in 2019 called Empty Planet. And he was basically saying that most UN predictions about global population size are wrong. And we're actually going to see by the mid 21st century, so like the 2060s, that we're going to see a huge drop off in birth rates. And we're also going to see a huge decrease in global populations. And that the world is going to struggle to how to ramify, you know, square that peg into the round hole yeah and just uh, just to reiterate that for people who always gloss over that point this is a global phenomenon it's not just the west it ain't just white people they're probably going to shrink significantly and they are a global minority but like you're seeing the population start to crater in places that you wouldn't even think of yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is even something that more mainstream writers and pundits and commentators like Peter Zihan, for example, in his, I want to say it was 2022 book, his newest book that just came out, uh, The End of the World is Just Beginning. Although I think, again, he's got that sort of liberal 
uh, I'm trying really nice not to be mean to the man. He has these uh, presuppositions where he's just like, don't worry, America. Uh, we can import infinity migrants and we're going to survive oh, yeah. the population <laughs> crisis. Despite the fact that even progressives like Philip Kahoro are like, no, that will actually kill any like sense of like national identity that's left in this country. And good luck making that work. And I mean, you already see the consequences of that now in America and especially in Canada as uh, Trudeau's government has just decided to, you know, I guess tape a, a lead pipe to the accelerator and not let go. But the the, the way in which we perceive, to, to also bring this back to time, uh, we do perceive time differently than I think our... our non-european or non-anglo-american counterparts in that we're fundamentally aware that there is what used to be called the information superhighway i mean it's still it's still a highway it does move faster than your real life uh and i'm reminded and this this is the funny thing this is that marshall McLuhan was a, a devout catholic until the end of his life and um when he reads nice. understanding media like you see him speak very reverently in terms of like, like any good Christian should. So when he refers to King David, you know, Hebrew says the psalmist says in Psalm, you know, 115 or 116, depending on your translation, um, you know, about certain things. And I think of that too, as you know, when they describe, uh, I don't remember which Psalm it is off the top of my head, but you know, a thousand years to you, O Lord, as is yesterday, as is a watch in the night, you know, a comparison to how God sees time or perceives time in human terms that we can understand. And we're aware of the fact that a thousand years on the internet, as is like three years in real life is to the news cycle. Like we're still, I think, dealing with the ramifications of a 24 hour news cycle with cable news and Ted Turner and CNN. But because everyone now is in this self correcting self-referential feedback loop where it's not just broadcast yourself it's become part of a community be a community leader be a janny in someone's community right you got to earn that little blue wrench if you're if you're a good if you're a good pay piggy or if you're a good janny or you're a good chatter in someone's youtube community or whatever and you are now not broadcasting yourself you are uh, a critic of the community that you are in. You are now a self-referential feedback loop of ideas and commentary about who we are as a thing. I mean, this is why you see all these questions saying like, oh, the DR is dead. Long live the DR. Or how things used to be like, oh, far right, fringe right, new right, old right, alternative right, dissident right, all sorts of things. So these like fringe, I guess, right-wing positions on X, Y, and Z issues. And because our sense of time and history is so warped. I mean, this is why, you know, people make fun of like what they would call old heads or old troons on Twitter, but those people are actually really important because they're the ones who have any semblance of history of what time was like back then. Uh, and for instance, I had the chance to find, and someone had posted it on Twitter through the internet archive, uh, the old archived web pages of Thermidor magazine. And they had one <laughs> i know and they had a talk and they had they had um the host of the thermidor magazine podcast in camp bot literally talk about the immediate aftermath of what happened in charlottesville in 2017 and to listen to them talk about these issues and to listen to them talk about optics or appearances and how the media is going to like take advantage of you and uh, again to refer back to the salter 
you know, or not, no, it wasn't in the Psalter. It's in um, Ecclesi. Yeah, I think it's in Ecclesiastes. Uh, nothing new is under the sun. What has been shall be, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's nothing new under the sun. And it's like, and that's also true in the sense that it also sort of illustrates how we're still dealing with old issues in the 21st century. Um, one of the things that came up on my YouTube feed, because I, I like, I like Norm Macdonald. A lot of people do. I think he's a funny guy. God rest ah. his soul. Ah, ah. Yeah, yeah and uh but <laughs> i started getting clips from old late night television shows and so the johnny carson show has a youtube channel with all these clips and archives of episodes and so it has a johnny carson episode interviewing ronald reagan from 1976 and i said okay let's listen to it and i listened to it and i'm listening to ronald reagan talk about the size of government uh the balancing between states rights how do we deal with the rising soviet union in terms of military power in the world stage but also how we need to decrease the size of government because there are too many people that work inside for the government that will work against anyone running for office who becomes president but also because those voter bases are now getting so big that if you were to try and do anything to reform the government they will always shut you down at every turn so what i'm hearing is foreign policy uh, civil rights ramifications, immigration, military, foreign policy, and the administrative state. And I'm like, wow, nothing has changed in like yeah. 60 years. Well, and well that goes back to that Jim Hogan thing. book where it's like the, the counterculture of the 60s, like how like it's almost line for line, beat for beat, what we've been going through over the past like five to 10 years. And then you're like, oh, we've done this before. Then what, 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 what happened? And then, but you're not even aware that that happened. Everyone thinks their thing is, this is I, the first I, time I, I was reading. Back. Exactly. I was reading Bob Whitaker's The New Right Papers. And I, uh, and I don't know how many people know who Bob Whitaker is, besides being close friends with uh, um, Sam Francis and quite a few others. I mean, people who were like pro-white and do the whole uh, anti-white stuff, like the no white guilt guys and all that. Anyone who's been sort of advocating that there's a distinct ideological, biological, and systematic hatred of like white Europeans or ethnic or European descended peoples in in the West. Uh, Bob Whitaker is a big part of that. I mean, he's got his own lovely little hate list thing on the ADL and the SBLC. But in this book, he, he, he was talking about all these people that helped get Reagan elected, this new right coalition after years of Democrat control. And one of the things that he was talking about was the use of mailers, direct mailers. And he's like, yeah, we bypassed the media by just mailing to these people, tens of thousands of people. So they got a hold of the real facts and the real issues. And it made, immediately made me think of Nick Land in his Xenosyst essays where he's talking about disintermediation is inherently a bad thing for the cathedral because it is an, it is it bypasses their forms of standard control. And even then, right, you're like, damn, we've been doing like, the same things with different technologies for a very long time. So it really does reiterate that maybe we haven't adapted to the system fully. I think maybe the closest adaptation or maybe rejigging it to make it work for the 21st century was 2016 and making it work with like the whole Twitter and Trump movement and the maggot stuff on Reddit and so on. And that's why everyone is chasing the high of 2016 because everyone could viscerally 
jack themselves in neuromancer style and be part of the quote unquote movement. Which is also why we're literally reliving that entire thing right now. Again, yes. almost line for line. I'm like, I'm seeing them talk about Trump the exact same way as the first time he was running. I'm like, I've seen this before. This entire thing, I've seen it, right? Am I wrong? Like, this is... Trump beat the guy. He beat the guy he wasn't supposed to beat. DeSantis dropped out. Who could have seen it? I'm like, well, I mean, we kind of saw it before. I think with DeSantis as well. <laughs> like, okay, we're doing Trump again, I guess. You know, um, you had mentioned, and I know you just talked about that with Orrin McIntyre, so we don't need to go down the whole uh, Trump thing, but there's a lot you talked about right there. I just want to uh, just put a pin in a couple of things. Um, and this could be a way we lead into empire and communications i don't know how long you have to talk but i know we can cover a lot of stuff very quickly um i i want to point out thank you very much for mentioning McLuhan is a catholic however i will point out that if he was a real catholic he wouldn't have quoted the bible he wouldn't even be reading the bible <laughs> but uh, contrary to popular belief those high church tradition types they read the bible quite often yeah but you mentioned also uh, Seraphim Rose, who, who we covered on our show before, and uh, you know, time is shorter than you think. There's something very interesting that occurred in with the advent of like Christianity, but also the Western mind that broke us out of the idea of cyclical time, which is a more ancient view of time. Um, and that's what makes Christianity so distinct compared to a lot of the more ancient myths. Um, it's that it it creates linear time. You know, the death and resurrection of Christ was a one time event. It's not a cyclical thing that keeps happening. And it's not so far back in history that's in the ether. Here's the specific date it happened. There's a before that and then after that and so in the western mind we've always had a very i would say historically unique conceptualization of the end and that's not to say only christians conceptualize that because the vikings also had ragnarok of course and there's other cultures that had a sort of a concept of the end times of course but within the western mind we always have like the ultimate final demise that doesn't restart once again it's not like the bhagavad it's not the 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 kali yuga the yuga cycle or anything like that there can be a final end and that's why we don't believe in in reincarnation and things like that um but what's interesting um is that going back to uh, decadence by jim haugen he talks about the counterculture revolution in contrast to the beats the beats were the previous counterculture and their existential dread was that the america that they despise would last forever whereas with the counterculture they conceptualize a sort of permanent change that was on the horizon some discombobulation this is where the age of aquarius stuff comes in this is where like there's a giant change coming and we're here to shepherd this society to the glorious future of some kind so there was an apocalyptic vision coded in to that conceptualization of the future and what's interesting in our society is we have not only remained with and just evolved that apocalyptic division we've just multiplied it and so every year we're, we're living within like 20 apocalyptic visions right now from climate change to trump destroying democracy to plastics in your blood like your average citizen is so keenly aware that things are about to end and you know even in the past the boomers like the nuclear 
annihilation. We've already accepted nuclear annihilation. A Zoomer now has factored that in. Yeah, it could be nuclear annihilation or it could be, you know, another COVID. There, there's so many ways the world could end that we just accept that that's and, and they keep fragmenting in shorter and shorter timelines. I think that's that's an interesting modern phenomena to the multiplication of apocalyptic visions. And, and yeah, they, yeah, there is this in, and this is very funny to me as someone, I, I don't understand it because I didn't, I, I grew up with, you know, sort of like church on, on, on Christmas and Easter. But I mean, with, as a military brat, I didn't really experience Christianity very well unless I went to my grandmother's Baptist church services when we were back in the United States. And even then I found it profoundly just foreign because I didn't grow up with it. I wasn't enculturated with it, but America, especially due to its founding and due to the various forms of Christianity that was brought over here is like the most eschatological country on earth. And so there are so <laughs> many competing visions of the apocalypse where it even affects people on the right. Uh, you know, Charles Haywood is an excellent example of this where he has the essay about the regime fragility and everyone's got their timeline for collapse. And it reminds me of like the Millerites and the seventh day Adventists about when the world is going to end. And uh, of course you have even non-Christian ideas of the apocalypse, like heaven's gate or so on and so forth. And the, with technology too, the heaven's gate website, etc. Um, have fun with that YouTube algorithm and looking for shit to put a <laughs> Wikipedia debunking note underneath my um, video. But I bring that up because to me it's it's so interesting because when I hear those portions of the gospel being read in church or I read them, everyone sort of skips out on the parable of the servants, you know, where they're they're talking about when the servant's going to come back. The master wants to see you working, you know, that Christ mm -hmm. can come back like a thief in the night, you know, as it's said, and we don't know when he's going to come back to refer back to the Psalter, right? You know, a thousand years is 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 yesterday is a wash in the night. And you don't know when he's going to come back. And, and when people say, oh, there's rumors of wars and there will be wars. What does Jesus say right afterwards? That is not the end. <laughs> and it's, uh, yeah. and I, I just, it's frustrating to me because it's just like, listen, when that stuff hits the fan, you're going to know it. Um, trust me, you know, uh, any, any preliminary re reading of revelation from John is going to tell you real quick, you know it when it's coming. So don't worry about it. And you're told explicitly as Christians, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Um, you know, tomorrow will worry unto itself. Sufficient is the day as its own evil. But because of how, for a variety of reasons on how Christianity has its issues, it, well, it, it does have its issues, but also it's these different interpretations. Like America, because of its very Protestant nature, is very eschatological. Even our like atheist libtards are, are are so focused on like their own versions of revelation. Like you had said, there's there's climate change, there's population collapse, there's the 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 deforestation, there's industrial farming, there's you know, microplastics in the balls, right? And I, I had this conversation, <laughs> and I I said this to to Meta Prime. I recorded a show with him. I said, listen, the guy that invents the technology that gets the microplastics out of the testicles of every American man is king. Like whoever yeah. that guy's going to make a ton of money and he's going to be really rich and people are going to like, you know, kiss the ground he walks on. But that's a whole other side note. But because we're so eschatologically focused in these Western discourses, because the center of discourse, at least for now, is America. Um, you know, we we're, everyone's got their timeline for collapse. And I and I've said this, I said, your whole like Weltanschauung, politically speaking, is entirely it is prime well, not entirely, but it is certainly predicated on what your view of collapse is. 
And that's the biggest thing that I think messes with our perception of time because we can see something in the news, right. That like becomes a nothing burger. Um, you know, there were, there were people who were thinking, uh, and, and with good reason, right? Like the war in Ukraine is an excellent example. You know, John Mearsheimer, who is a baby boomer and a liberal in a lot of ways, you know, like he he was pro Bernie Sanders, everybody. Uh, but he was like, listen, like there are real ways in which this war can escalate that could lead to limited nuclear exchange. And And of course, if you're someone who grew up in the Cold War, that's the end of the world to you. And we, I mean, thank God. Nothing has escalated to the point in that war, although there's a few flashpoints where we may have gotten close, where no one's decided to turn the keys and press the buttons. But those sort of framings for apocalypse added on to our bias in time of communication radically alters our, our ability, I think, to act as good political actors or even rational actors you know how can you be rational if you think that the world is ending or you know that you've got to be prepping and doing more or that we're going to do x y and z like we don't we don't know and so it's i think very hard in these digital spaces to navigate and to listen to people uh often like i listen to people like future conflict or uh, gray zone intelligence and stuff like that because i think that those guys are right like the, the brazilification of america's happening right before my eyes so i should yeah. heed their words Whereas others are, you know, in La La Land, in some respect, they're in their own version of digital Elysium where we're going to effectively accelerate and we're going to build the rockets that leave you swarthoids behind. And it's like, better hurry, you know, like, good luck, you know, before the uh, FD, before the American government sues Elon yeah. Musk again for <laughs> not being uh, diverse enough. You mentioned something funny there um, about the Ukraine war. And I know you like me are very, very friendly to the neo-realist school of geopolitics. One thing I noticed is every single person I listened to called the Ukraine war wrong. Like I didn't hear a correct prediction for years, but people are saying Russia is going to win in a couple of weeks or Ukraine's going to win in a couple of weeks. Everyone's fucking wrong on our side. And no one has analyzed why that might is. Everyone just keeps cranking out the takes and you had mentioned something a reason there is because and this is where we might get into the book we mentioned first but we haven't even really gotten to yet which is uh harold innes's um any either of his books but one of them that i reviewed was uh, empire and communications and you talked about the dissident right and the way we communicate or the alt-right or the, the, this sort of decentralized right we have right now i say dissident right because that's the most accepted term but it also kind of imprisons us on the fringes. I don't know if that's on purpose, but it kind of works in our favor. Um, I think people like to identify as being the outsider because we have an innately, we don't want to be normies, right? You know, I, there's this, it, it's that tribalization aspect yeah. um, as but, well, but go on. I always say, if you're on the distant right, you have to ask, do I want to permanently be a dissident do i permanently want to be on the fringe of society a lot of people would say no a lot of people are just here temporarily embarrassed leaders who think that they can you know achieve status by the levers of power eventually um there's a lot of exiled academics in the space that think they're going to be let back in eventually but then my argument is that there's there is a case to be made that people could permanently want to exist on the fringes and not gain that status. Now, the reason is going to uh, Innes's empire and communications. 
he talks about the relationship between communication methods and how empire functions. And the way I explain this is for anyone who listens to the Prudentialist or especially anyone who listens to you on Orrin McIntyre's show, you're probably familiar with the concept of elite theory. You're probably familiar with the concept of the managerial state. So when I draw a schematic of what this looks like or spatialize it, I'm like, okay, you got your center of power at the middle. That's the administrative state. Then you got the next concentric circle around that, which is sort of the intermediate powers. Um, These might be administrators, but these also, that's the, historically the priest class this is the whole middle area of power the the press and things like that and then on the periphery it's the people um and there was always a conflict between the periphery and the center and every civilization or any advanced state you're always going to have this that's that's just the form it takes it's not going to be so evenly split like the way i'm painting it right now but there are these zones of influence and what he was saying going back to samaria going back to egypt going back to ancient greece what he found was that there's two types of communication there's communication that is optimized for time and communication that's optimized for space and this is reflected in the media so going back uh back to the advent of papyrus you have the before you know there was the oral cultures before that. Then there was literate culture. So this is usually we're talking about literate cultures, like the centers of power. They loved carving. They loved statues. They loved, you know, writing, etching things in stone. But on the periphery, the people, you know, where all this spontaneous stuff was happening, they preferred media that uh, that was not optimized for time. So optimized for time means it'll last a long time. You make write things down in ways that have permanence, whereas the people they communicate in a way that can spread over a long distance and it degrades faster, but it's, it's a bit more fluid and a bit more electric. So that's why they would communicate in papyrus and one uh, or paper papyrus later and then paper it, it, whatever was originated on the fringes, the periphery was eventually adopted by the center, which demanded that the periphery create a new form of communication. Now, a modern example would be, Look at the evolution of publishing, because there was a time when paper was the purview of the the people, the intelligentsia, even the the bourgeoisie that was further on the outside to communicate very, very fast new ideas. Yes, and it, and it radically altered the media landscape. I know you haven't read this book by Innes, but he talks about this in the bias of communication, where he talks about how the cheap metropolitan like newspapers. And there were hundreds dozens of newspapers in one major city alone. Whereas nowadays they're all owned by six or seven different digital conglomerates. But um, uh, when, when it came to the invention of the telegraph and the wire, you know, we talk about the AP Newswire. we're still referring to the telegraph, but he says, quote, the cheap metropolitan press took full advantage of the invention and extension of the telegraph. A rapid prompt supply of news was available and accurate information was provided to meet the demands of the stock and produce exchanges. Greeley said, Horace Greeley, that the telegraphic dis, uh, dispatch is the great point and the editorials have less influence than in England. Um, the Telegraph compelled newspapers to pool their efforts into collecting and transmitting news. A cooperative service was worked out in 1848 between the Courier, the Inquirer, Tribune, Sun, Herald, Express, Journal of Commerce, which became the basis as we know it today as the Associated Press. 
News sold. The news was sold to the Philadelphia Public Ledger and to the Baltimore Sun, and additional subscribers lowered the cost of operation to New York uh, readers. The extension of the Telegraph and an increase of news accentuated the demand for faster presses, the prerequisite of large sales and low prices. In 1852, the New York Tribune installed six installed a six-cylinder press with a capacity of 15,000 sheets per hour. Other plants installed presses up to 10 cylinders with capacities of 25,000 sheets, um, but the number of presses meant costs of duplication and setting up the type and loss of time. Papers with the largest circulation were compelled to start earlier, omit the latest news, to lose the earliest sales, and to suffer in out-of-town circulation, end quote. Now, how does that not just totally apply if we put that in the digital sense, where we are now, faster, 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 to where yeah, now things are disintermediated, and now we're that's exactly with... it. So now it's now it's not just this. And to go back to um, Innes and his book about empire and control, this is about um, space biased communication. So um, uh, let me quickly tell people what that means. You have two types of forms of biases in communication. You have space-biased and time-biased forms of communication. And this is in um, the bias communication, but it's also in empire communications. Uh, so time-biased media includes clay or stone tablets, manuscripts, papyrus or parchment, uh, and oral sources and oral traditions. These are intended to carry stories and messages that last for many generations, but reach limited audiences, which is why I think you have such an interest in the written word, trying to reclaim that because there is sort of an... Uh, an ethnic bias or a uh, just an in-group preference that might exist yeah, for and, and a times. desire for like legacy. We want to make yes. things that last a long time. That's why everyone wants to publish a book. Yeah, it you seems know, like, more real to us. And I, and I'm just as biased of this. Yeah, you know, I, I will wholly, I will wholly admit that I, um, I think that's why I still buy physical media, but also because you know censorship reasons. But anyways, that's what those are. And then there's space bias communications. This is more modern media, radio, television, mass circulation of newspapers and the telegraph that convey information to many people over long distances, short exposure times. Time biased media favors stability, community, tradition, and religion, but space biased media can facilitate rapid change, materialism, secularism, and empire. Um, and he says this in Empire Communications, quote, the concepts of time and space reflect the significance of media to civilization. Media that emphasize time are those durable in character, such as parchment, clay, and stone. The heavy materials are suited to the development of architecture and sculpture. Media that emphasize space are apt to be less durable in the, and light in character, such as papyrus and paper. The latter are suited to wide areas of administration and trade. The conquest of Egypt by Rome gave access to supplies of papyrus, which became the basis of a large administrative empire. Materials that emphasize that emphasize time favor decentralization and hierarchical types of institutions, which those that emphasize space favor centralization and systems of government less hierarchical in character. Less hierarchical in character and favor centralization. The administrative state, we have you know, the internet, we have tweets. This is why Trump was so good at Twitter, right? Like he was the president of the United States. He got ahead of the game with the media because he was the main character in that respect. And so uh, this is why I think it's also funny that because we're retribalizing, as McLuhan points out, and I think everyone can look at our Twitter spaces and see that we're a bunch of tribes, you know, we're like monkeys throwing shit at each other across the digital space in our own respective cages, that we're utilizing 
space-biased forms of communication while still creating communities and tribes with their own oral traditions and lore that have that again that that time biased form of communication so like we want we want to people to buy our books we want people to buy physical tangible things of ours like go buy my mug that you can find at the merch link down below right like it was really cool that uh disgraced propagandist has a prudentialist mug and he took a picture of it and tweeted it out i was like oh it's neat someone's got like a real thing and so we our lore our, our character arcs they're not just televised video game versions of characters and stories for these people who are real people flesh and blood or i would hope that they are if not the bots are really good these days but instead they are trying to be tribal and have an oral tradition that can be conveyed in their videos and who they are and their content but they're utilizing a form of communication that tries to get rid of hierarchy it's very centralized like even though we're dissidents and some people argue in favor of telegram you know, you still want to be on Twitter. You still want to be on YouTube because those are the centralized platforms that, that get the most yeah. views. And that's where the interesting stuff has happened. And something that kind of gets lost in these discussions is while there's communication bias towards time and space, you kind of need both for an effective empire civilization. And there's a quote here from Empire Communications. Um, since we're doing quotes, it says, Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 but I actually have all these quotes and it's, it's dovetailing it, very it. well with what I had. It says concentration on a medium of communication implies a bias in the cultural development of the civilization concerned either towards an emphasis on space and political organization or towards emphasis on time and religious organization introduction of a second medium tends to check the bias of the first and create conditions suited to the growth of empire. And the modern example that you kind of touched on that I was going to talk about before was if you look at the publishing industry, the publishing industry used to be this exciting periphery thing. Now, if you think of the publishing industry now, what do you think of it? It's this static ossified mass with giant I think, walls I think around. Same, I think the same thing about C-SPAN. Yeah, it's 30, not for regular 30, 30 people. Years ago, thirty years ago, Jared Taylor, Ariana Huffington, and like you know, uh, E. Michael Jones could have like respectable conversations about their worldview on C-SPAN. Uh, nowadays, I don't think you ever could make that happen. Exactly, and but where, where's the new stuff coming from? It's coming in meme culture, and it takes a while for the centers of power to understand that, but it eventually tries to absorb it, and that's what we've been seeing over the past 10 years or so, is the center of power trying to get its arms around this digital space and adopt the technology. You're kind of seeing that with crypto, too. Like they, they It took them a while to figure it out, but now they're trying to get their arms around it, and now, for us, since the discussion is what the future is like we need to figure out how we're going to what, what's the next exciting way to communicate that and i know what some people are going to say they're going to say urbit sure fine i hear you but there's we need to our digital space where we could exist is rapidly becoming hostile towards us and we need to find the next space that we can even have these conversations and we everyone here feels the walls closing in on them right now everyone who's got a substack is feeling that now even though i've been calling that for a year or two like don't get comfortable on substack 
the love of God. Don't get comfortable on the most journalist-friendly platform that has ever existed. They're going to kick the the cool, exciting people off eventually. But then we that that's the level we need to figure out that the digital space is being co-opted entirely. Social media is gone, but like what what's a new space? And I don't know if we have that answer yet. What's the I think I honestly I see more people breaking out in the real world and doing IRL meetups and stuff. Like that seems to be a more exciting space where new things are happening because I think the online space is going to be progressive. It's going to be dead soon enough. It's going to be completely co-opted and no one's going to want to even be there anymore. We're kind of getting a last gasp right now with people, you know, being able to say edgy things on Twitter. But even that, that seems kind of performative at this point. Like where, where's the real stuff happening? It's, it's actually not online anymore. I don't think And I'm curious to hear what you think about that. I mean, that's the thing about trying to evolve with the times, right? Like, I remember several years ago, for instance, for, for like you're talking about crypto, I remember when like Facebook, before it even changed its name to Meta, like Zuckerberg was thinking about like creating its own like sort of Facebook coin or currency, and it was going to have the backings of all these um, uh, companies like, you know, with like with MasterCard, Visa, and, and, and Chase Bank. And like Congress was like, uh, no. And, and not because they weren't okay with the idea of it. I think it's because they wanted to do it for themselves. And that's where we started be really seeing the central bank digital currency stuff really emerge. I mean, there's white papers that go back decades prior to that. But still, I, I think that there is a point to be made that there are people are trying to synthesize the digital and the real, right? And But also in a way that doesn't explicitly make them targets to the the regime. Right. Because they know that if they're trying to do something, we're like, excuse me, like a bunch of quirked up white guys are like trying to start a business <laughs> or whatever. Like they know that like quirked up white boy energy is a, is a bad thing for the regime. Even if you're just trying to be like, we're a competent business of like white males, like trying to do an airline service. And they're like, yeah, none of that. You know, you must. Yeah. yeah <laughs> anytime there's like five to 10 white guys doing a thing like, wait, what do you what what, what, what is this? this? What are you up to? <laughs> yeah, I know. Um uh, and, and are you, so are you I, making are you making a new thing that's going to break the paradigm over here? Well, that's why startup culture. Like, I understand why, like the 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 gentleman who's behind the startup state, or why, like even Curtis Yarvin, like their worldview is the 1990s California ideology, or of this like quasi left libertarian techno optimism that like we can create the solutions to the 21st century. Like that's a very powerful drug if you're if you're a believer into that, right? Like you talk to uh, a lot of tech guys in the sector, or you read the Andreas and Horowitz uh, techno optimist manifesto. It reads like '90s end of the millennium optimism. It. I love that manifesto on our uh, paywall show, uh, the real called Real Secret Coffee Hours. I go like line by line through that manifesto and just break down, uh, you know, spoiler alert. I'm not a fan because yeah, the, the, the techno optimist manifesto cites Nick land. I'm not sure you read him carefully. If there's one thing, it's, I wouldn't like, say it's like, it's like the, uh, it's like when Nick land replied to that one person, avid fan of your work, clearly a sign of mental illness. 
And it's just like, you're citing me in a techno-optimist manifesto. Clear sign you didn't read my fucking literature. (laughs) And one thing, just uh, so people are aware of this, you know, the book I mentioned called The Network State, it's written by that type of guy. I understand the intoxication with that worldview because I miss the old internet too. I miss when it was just fucking freaks out here. I get it. But, you know, he'll say he's the type of guy who says every problem can be solved by the blockchain. And I just think there's some things that the blockchain can't solve. Like we don't need a constitution. We'll just figure it out with the blockchain. NFTs. You heard about NFTs? That could be, you know, I'm skeptical of a lot of these easy solutions to ancient problems. And I think that's what a lot of the startup guys have. It's easy tech solutions to problems that have not really been resolved for 2000 years. Um, it, but like, I, I kind of see there is kind of a, a quirky excitement. You know, like a lot of people don't like Yarvin. I actually do, even though I vehemently disagree with him on certain things. I'm like, you know, if I, if I see him on the Tim Dillon show, that's worlds colliding for me. That's an exciting fucking get, you know, like I'll listen to him talk. I'll listen to a I lot like of these how guys Curtis talk. just takes any podcast interview. Like he'll, he'll, he'll take well, interviews with like 500 plus channels or 500 plus sub channels. And then he'll be on Ethan Ralph's kill stream. Well, someone uh, should tell him that he should respond to my fucking emails then that you he'll ever like, oh he'll go on every podcast well i'm gonna try not take that personally because he won't come on blood satellite and you know it's not like i think about it it sounds <laughs> like you think about it no i'm i'm fine everything's fine <laughs> yeah 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 it's uh, if i hear when someone says they're fine i know that that's never true um that's how i feel <laughs> when john mearsheimer doesn't reply to my fucking emails so i i feel you Here's the answer. Him not responding to him not responding to mine makes sense. It doesn't make sense that he wouldn't respond to yours. It kills me because like he's been on the Duran more than once, and I'm like, just talk to me, talk to me, you old bastard. You know, like it doesn't. I'm not. I'm fine. I'm fine. The same way I wish Sean. I wish Sean McMeekin would reply to my emails. If there's one thing I want people to leave this very inspiring and illuminating podcast with, it's we're fine. <laughs> I might I might make the title of the stream of the, when I upload this tomorrow. I might just call this I'm fine um, with dimes. <laughs> we're we'll, we'll we're fine. There. Everything's fine. That's that's it. That's, well, that's, yeah, it, that's it's it. funny because we've talked about doing a show together like once a month where we would cover isn't just the news but it would be like a something like this right where it it has staying power that's what we should call it we're fine that is and i one of the things i wanted to prove because i wanted to prove that i can clean up well because the last time we met it was six hours (laughs) on a very contentious topic um and i want to be like you know i it is i am able to talk about things without bringing I don't even want to mention it here. I don't want to get you in trouble if I mention it here, but it's an Odyssey exclusive. It's an Odyssey exclusive talking about the relationship between two ethnic minorities in the United States. You can go find it on Odyssey. Dimes and I read a very fascinating book called What Went Wrong by a gentleman named Murray Friedman. Um, I will link those in the description if you are also interested. And you've made it this far into our, our into our talk, but maybe to, to move things back towards the empire direction with Harold Innes, and maybe this could be a good way to wrap up our discussion i think is that we are in this weird sort of imperial i mean we, we live under an empire and i and i wish that and i wish that both parties would admit that we live under an empire and i and i don't mean to like say that in the sort of like third world anti-imperialist sense 
it's just that if what after reading William Appleman Williams and everyone should, and I've got like two or three streams on Williams with like George Bagby and reviewing his books by myself that you should listen to. And he'll tell you like America has been fundamentally an empire since the beginning and the physical frontier of empire, you know, when, when the, when the frontier closed in America with Frederick Jackson Turner's thesis, that was so important to like the Americanization of the world that we, then we just looked outward and then we started doing a lot of our uh, non, you know, our, our, our colonialism and say like the, the Caribbean or in Latin and Central America or in East Asia, right? The open door policy expanding and keeping the door open to China and the Boxer rebellion, yada, yada, yada. And I'm oversimplifying it because I want people to read those books and to, to listen to the shows that I've done on them. But now that we live in an empire that is digital, it is electric, it is instantaneous. You're sort of in this electric state of mind where the government at any time can either announce something by tweet or can, you know, accidentally play their hand too much because they do things in tweets, but they also do things in person. Like the, the state is trying to figure out how does it exist in the 21st century in the midst of disintermediation in the midst of these semi-permeable online communities that you don't really know for sure what they're doing in real life until you put, you know, confidential informants or human intelligence in there, like the Gretchen Whitmer thing, or that like 18 year old, like trad cath guy that got in trouble with the FBI a few years, like months ago that even Rod Dreher was like, I can't support this because he said nasty things on the internet. So did his dad. And um, it's a good Rod Dreher impression. Well, I just think he's a, I, I, you know what? I will, I will try really hard not to say what I th- personally think about Mr. Dreyer. This isn't the first time he's um, called people shitty human beings and helped dox people, but he's got a terrible track record, and he can go make more international incidents in Hungary. Um, I, he's not my problem. Uh, that, that's that's up to God. But anyways, that, that's a guy who's hungry for uh, a certain type of appendage. If you catch my drift. Yes, he likes black dick, Mr. Mr. Dimes. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, hey, oh. (laughs) I'm not wrong, but anyways, um, I'll I'll take the heat for that one. But to to, to focus back on Empire, it's just that we're all under a, I mean, like we're under a decentralized system despite the fact that it's centralized, this is the thing why everyone like wants to get over Yarvin, but can't, uh, or doesn't like they, they want to move on from him, but they haven't taken the few things from Yarvin that I think are pretty good observations. Uh, yes, there is the, the media plus the Academy plus government. There's your cathedral, right? And then you have like the castle and the military, etc. red government versus blue government, outer party versus inner party. But the thing about that is that we know there's collusion. We know that they coordinate. It's not spontaneous. And that because they collude and they have, and we can, we, we saw this with COVID and we're seeing it now with um, Fannie Willis. I, I think one of the prosecutors or district attorneys that's going after Trump in one of these cases communicating with the Biden white house. And so like open collusion and it's, it's, it's not just centralized to one institution, but the ideology is centralizing like, this is why I think intersectionality is one of the greatest political tools ever, because it doesn't matter if you are a single issue voter about like 
veganism or like ending animal cruelty like that's your deal so you're going to vote for the democrat because they're like pro-animal rights or whatever it doesn't matter that you're a single issue pro-animal rights voter because you're on that team and because you've bought into this ideology you are now part of this ideological institution that says yes i'm a single issue voter on this issue but I now have to bow down to the great Zimbabwe five times a day. I now have to support uh, transgender people going into the, to the restroom and so on and so forth. So I think that that's an important thing to, to consider with how powerful the centralized ideology is in this, in this digital era. There we are. So, yeah, I mean, this is why I find the space bias communication of empire works so very well with respects to, ideology or what might be called like technique by Jacques Ellul and propaganda is, is that, you know, you don't have one institution, right? It used to be like the King. It used to be the state, the government, the magistrate, the magisterium. Now it's in sort of all encompassing ideology where you have a, a, a factions of people that may not agree on everything, but because they're on team progress or team X, they now have to support Y and Z or Z for you Canadians and acknowledge that this is where we're at and this is how empire is going to be so you know you can talk about gay race communism or call it whatever you want right like all of a sudden it doesn't matter that like you know Alyssa, a nice white liberal woman who probably wants to have children one day is now like a raging rabid leftist who hates men when she used to just be a single issue voter on say like stop animal abuse What's interesting is I'm reminded of to the point of sort of centralization in a more sort of higher amorphous strata. Um, I'm reminded of Samuel Huntington um, and uh, his book, The End of Civilization, I think it is, um, basically talking about how in the 21st century you're seeing, and this is something that even like Richard Spencer is talking about, this sort of pan-Europeanism an East versus West in a broader civilizational sense um, kind of represented here as NATO, but it versus the BRICS countries, but you're seeing national independent states start to coalesce or these larger civilizational identities. And that's what you like. They're, you're dr- they're drawn into a different center of gravity. Just like you're talking about with your single issue, you're drawn into the center of gravity of some sort of ideology. And I think when we talk about like retribalization, like we're trying to figure out how to exist in that same space in the same way that nations are trying to act in supranational ways. Like we talk about Davos culture, which is really just shorthand for like the higher end of Western culture. Um, They're talking about like how the, if the world is run by the nation state model is still important. And the geopolitical rules are still in play, but there's this whole higher strata of decision making that's happening that's decoupled from the nation state while still kind of acting in service of it broadly. Um, and we're, we're trying to figure out how to exist in that upper strata as well to try and decouple ourselves from sort of the 19th and 20th century models and but not fall into the center of gravity of some other ideology. Um, I, I think that's what in a lot of ways we're seeing right now. What do you think about that? I think that there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, well, yes, 
in, in the sense that I'm thinking of Samuel P. Huntington's Clash of Civilizations. Clash of Civil. That's what it is. Wrong. Okay. Time okay. <laughs> right. That's what I was thinking of as you were talking about. I'm like, this sounds like Huntington's thesis back in '96. And, and I don't love Hunting, and I don't. I I just find myself returning to that book more than I thought I would. I don't agree with everything in the book, but I do see something. To, the, these massive conglomerations that are kind of fueled by diaspora cultures you know extending out well that's um, the, and, that's the globalization part right with the immigration too i mean this was something that there's like a, a 19 i want to say 77 72 interview that marshall McLuhan did and he was talking it's the the raw broadcaster and i cite it in one of my recent essays uh, i think it's the one about the ireland protests um the medium is the weapon uh, marshall McLuhan's war is what it's called and McLuhan is asked, well, like, well, you know, someone, I, I guess maybe it was like a softball question where McLuhan could elaborate, but he says, you know, uh, this global village, like, do you really think that, you know, we, maybe we could bring, get to know each other better and, and come to a better understanding? He's like, no, you know, McLuhan is like, no, when we all get closer together. We realize how different we are and we hate each other. Dude, that uh, interview just, is so good because you can tell the crowd was against him for a lot of it. Like he was getting booze. During, I think it's the same interview we're talking about where he's like surrounded by like a, almost like a stadium of people just going up. No, and like this one, he, this one was a, this one was a news uh, interview, but I, I remember sure. an old black and white one where they talked about the global village and he was basically saying the same thing. And it was like the crowd was like turning on him, but he didn't give a shit. Cause uh, well, I mean, good, good, good on him for not giving a shit, but no, this one, this one was a, on a television station because they were talking about the, the Quebec law and the, uh you know desire to like leave or at least have their own sort of separatist uh movement and such but uh i found that so fascinating because he's talking about this back in of course the the, the late 70s maybe early 80s before he died and it was like phenomenal to hear because it's just like well this is why like twitter can be really interesting right like everyone remembers the you know it smell crazy in their tweet <laughs> where black Twitter and Indian Twitter had a digital race war and the Indians won in part because every like 30 seconds or 90 seconds an Indian logs into the internet for the first time, but also because there's just more Indians than there are black people on black Twitter. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's uh, that this happens like every couple of months, right? Where we're like, oh yeah, it turns out we all really don't like each other and we're all part of, this the global village isn't the global village it's like the the, the global uh as some people have described it and i kind of like this way of describing it as well as is that twitter and those kinds of social media is a giant clout-based pvp server where instead of like <laughs> you know the winner winner chicken dinner like it's Fortnite, you're uh you're here to you know ratio the other race the other tribe and so on and so yeah now there's this uh fight for identity which can be achieved through violence but because our systems are gamified that kind of quote-unquote violence is digitized it's about ratios it's about getting someone to lock their account it's about doxing them which can then lead to actual violence of course and swatting them and so on and getting these people killed so like the but because we're so far removed from actually like choking each other out in the streets or like beating each other with lead pipes or firing weapons at each other. We, we feel the sense of distance in our, in our warfare because it is in these like gamified digital realms. And so, yeah, like these civilizations will emerge, right? Like 
but also the real world civilizations emerge too with like the third world notion of like based and trad china but also in the real world geopolitically speaking this stuff was also being leveraged by like the Soviet Union against the United States when it came to like civil rights or the treatment of blacks, et cetera, et cetera. And even now in the 21st century, because this new technology of the internet and social media and so on is still being used effectively against the state, that it doesn't matter what Ben Shapiro tweets out. Uh, you know, Jackson Hinkle, who I'm not a fan of, can do like the whole like, alert alarm emoji and then say whatever the hell he wants which can be probably bullshit or maybe it's true who knows <laughs> and then like ratio ben shapiro every day and it's just like this is kind of a weapon and it wouldn't surprise me considering his like ex-wife or whatever is russian that maybe he was like a paid agent i'm not going to make that accusation i'm just saying it's a possibility that that could be the case and again you're seeing these civilizational entities utilizing deracinated deterritorialized individuals to wage weird fifth generation warfare on the internet i mean this is what was yeah. the chinese talked about in unrestricted warfare they're like at a certain point people are complicit in wars that they don't know that they're even enemy combatants of and i mean yeah that book is cool because they call george soros a terrorist which is true but they also are pointing out the fact that there may come a point in time in the war in in the future somewhere down the line that it might be acceptable to assassinate like a Wall Street banker or a venture capitalist because they're, whether they know it or not, a combatant in a war against their country and their people. Yeah. And like that, that, that's where we're at now. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and maybe we could even end on this. Um, it seemed that war historically was fought between warriors, which then evolved to warriors can be lurking amongst the populace. Um, that was asymmetrical warfare. And then the final evolution now is that every single individual is a warrior. Um, and then there's this book we covered on the show is about neurotechnology. And it was a collection of essays written by academics and intellectuals uh, who are affiliated in some sense with the government or the military. It was very, very straightforward. It was saying like we there's neurotechnology, which means and neurotoxins, which are devices that can enhance or impede human cognitive abilities so we're talking brain chips we're also talking toxins we're talking any form of technology that can boost almost like a mentat from dune you know making can we make a human being into a computer for one specific task and then realizing that the entire populations can be weaponized with this technology so not to get all conspiratorial but you know something like covid you know, you don't need a weapon that kills a huge segment of the population like a nuke. You just need everyone, everyone there to get a little bit sicker. If everyone can get three to 10% worse at their job, it's actually way easier to take over or subvert that country. And once you start viewing it from that perspective, you realize, oh, every individual, it doesn't care how unplugged you want to be, is subject to the system. And that is where it uh, connects with McLuhan when he talks about electricity the extension of our nervous system 
puts us in contact with everyone simultaneously. And that's why something like this can happen. That's why you can have a thing like a psyop. You can have a cognito hazard. You can have a mind virus because you in a multitude of different ways can be weaponized in the favor of whatever political center of gravity we're talking about right now. And like you, a great example is the Soviet Union, which you gave, but the Soviet Union is just one example. Imagine how worse it's got as, as we've talked about before, the centers of power have pulled in all these digital techniques and weaponized them. So th- that's maybe blackpilling. That's scary. But I think those are the questions and concerns we have as we we make use of our deterritorialized space. We figure out what the next step is, which is really what we're talking about broadly right here. Like, wh- where do we go from here? Well, we're we're involved in a war. You know, it, it people are like, oh, you're involved in a mind war. I'm like, yes, but really with actual algorithms and toxins that can be introduced to make you literally smarter or dumber or more passive or whatever it might be. And, and we covered this on the show a long time ago about like, this isn't an alien concept in the real world. If you look at governments, like they love this because it means you don't have dead bodies. They, there's no limit to what scientists will develop. If it means we can cure war, we can fight a war where nobody dies there's people who put their entire lives behind that goal. That means hijacking your mind. That means giving you strange chemicals that might cause long-term problems. But you know what? It's not a nuke and it doesn't involve women and children being burned in a pit. So it's worth it. So there's no limit that they will go to, but there's no limit that they won't go to in the interest of not having dead babies. But that includes using your mind as some like fifth generational node in a larger weird fucking ideological war. And that's a weird way to end this conversation, but I think it's all connected. I, I know I, I would agree with that wholeheartedly because we are combatants and conflicts that are both state sponsored by our own respective governments, but also by foreign agents and, and entities. And I mean, this all, and this isn't just connected to like the digital stuff, but it's also back to the real world. Like if I recall correctly, and I'm going to now quickly double check as I, as I, as I Google this, um, that uh, someone like Alejandro Mayorkas, born in Havana, <laughs> Cuba, who is the seventh secretary of Homeland Security, had, if I recall correctly, sat on the board of a particular um, uh, immigration group. I'm trying to make, make sure that I, I know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, immigration board that he sat on. Uh, that he was part of, I want to say like the, um, oh, what is the one that like is the uh, Israeli immigration group that everyone likes to, to point out? Just one? <laughs> well, I know, right? But, um, or maybe I'm, it's going to bother the crap out of me. Um, I'm looking I'm, for it right now. I am. I'm, I'm literally typing it up and I'm ruining this whole like flow of conversation because it's going to bug the shit out of me unless I figure out what it is. Um, for the folks at home, Israel is a nation state in the Middle East that is there the... we go. Highest, highest, the humanitarian aid and advocacy organization, which is um, a refugee protection program. And highest, if I recall correctly, uh, had. Um, once had uh, my uh, Alejandro Mayorkas, and I'm, I'm confirming that right now. 
highest their slogan is welcome the stranger protect the refugee that doesn't sound very nice does it yeah i know uh yeah highest congratulates board member alejandro mayorkas on his dhs nomination so there you go um so i I was i wasn't completely going off schizobrain here but anyways like it's like those uh those guys last halloween and this is a uh, this was sort of funny where people were were shitting on them they were like passing out copies of like europa the last battle with like popcorn and candy and they were all like shitting on them because it's like well if you're gonna do that like give them like a full-size candy bar or whatever it's like a four-hour whatever video or whatever yeah but which i've never seen by the way and i've been told that it's it's not that great but i'm not going to subject myself to watching it when i know that like there are groups out there that are advocating for um more more heterogeneity inside the population because that decreases civic trust civic participation makes it harder to govern i mean this is why like the chinese will openly just talk about like well we can sit back and watch america destroy itself with diversity because it is a weapon and the more that and again this goes back to the postmodern world that we're in where biopower is very much on the table and that there is psychopolitics and psychosecurity that you have to consider because as dimes was saying there are there are cognito hazards there are meme plexes and mind viruses and weapons biocommunications technologies that once you know them it's very hard to try and think coherently and this is why certain quote unquote questions can wreck your brain very quickly and we saw this for like regular liberals on on the left trump broke these people they could not believe that a 90s democrat from the you know who who helped with roger stone trash um the 2000 uh political campaign run of pat buchanan for president with his little like reform party stints rumors in 2000 uh is now like the reincarnation of adolf hitler like they can't believe it but he was president and they did everything they could to stop him. And their minds are still broken by this in this instance. And so now Trump is very much the, we have Pat Buchanan at home sort of. Yeah, he is. We have Pat Buchanan at home. I'd rather have the actual Pat Buchanan, but um, God has, has told us that we get what we deserve. And um, (laughs) uh, I guess we deserve Trump. And uh, well, Demaestro was right. A, A people gets the government it deserves. And, um <laughs> that for me that just tells me that maybe someone needs to be like jonah the prophet and tell us ninevites to repent because i'm really tired of this stuff i'll put on a sackcloth and repent for 40 days but please 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 get me out of this fake and gay world but as you were saying and to wrap up here we are in a world where these things affect real life just as much as they do the digital but we are in gamified communication systems that have amputated ourselves from the real world while simultaneously plugging us into a much larger environment that we're now in war. And unlike the anime or manga or whatever it is, like Sword Art Online, where people are in like a video game and if they die, like they're, they're dead for real. Unlike that kind of stuff, we're plugged into a world where every day there are casualties, both psychological but very real ones. And nations are at risk and civilizations are at risk. And because we're evolving the challenge that has been laid down before us as regular people, as groups, as ethnos, as whatever you want to identify with is what of my traditions, my language, my canon, my beliefs, my values, my genes, my name carries on to the next generation. And will it survive the retribalization of the West 
in an age where, you know, most of the people we know outside of this online space are functionally illiterate and just want to have a beer and watch their football game. That's the, that's where we're at. Yeah. And we covered a lot of ground on this episode. I, I hope we gave people a lot to think about. Um, it's very, there's a lot we didn't get to cover as well. We only scratched the surface on McLuhan. We only scratched the surface on a Harold Innes. And I would encourage people to really pick up and read the books we discussed. Like you can have a great time reading McLuhan. It's very easy to read. It gets into really kooky metaphysical stuff. It's it's it'll give you a lot to think about. Um, you don't need to agree with all of it, but it'll recontextualize a lot of you know your understanding of what media is. And because we're so adept at looking backwards and trying to contextualize ourselves in our ancestors and previous lifestyles and live in nostalgia. And I don't think a lot of the people who who like to think about where we should go next really appreciate how different our minds are and the mindscapes that we're dealing with right now. And I think once we do that, we can actually strategize better because we'll keep you know putting a round peg in a square hole saying, why isn't this fitting? We keep trying things and they're not working. And I think that frustration leads people to burn out. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, give up on some people say there's no political solution. You know, I'm not one of those. I think every every strategy helps, you know, but um, th there's some really mind bending things that are occurring right now. And it's easy to sound schizophrenic, too, but. Oh, yeah, it, but it's, what, it's 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 the what's the first step of having a no of fixing a problem is admitting you have a problem. The first thing about acknowledging that we, we live in the hands of an angsty communist gangster computer. God is acknowledging the existence of an angry gangster communist computer. God uh, to rip from uh, Mr. Deck there real quick. I, I, I just, <laughs> I think it's true. I mean, it's, it does sound crazy, but I mean, let watch like anyone that you know is a personality, right? How quickly some of them have risen to prominence and have crashed into weird, like psychological breaks where they're resentful, angry people, or they're just part of these like really self-imposed ghettos uh, of existence. And that's kind of what we have to deal with in our own world, which is why talking about the stuff's important. And and yes, we'll, we will probably, maybe I'll come over again on the, on, on blood satellite to talk more about this dimes. But I do think that you are right, that this is just, this is where we live. This is where we're at. It does sound schizo. It's easy to fall into rabbit holes, but do read the books that we've recommended. If you are a patron or a, a backer of my work, financially speaking, you will get access to my thoughts and readings on McLuhan's understanding media and as I already said on Substack, my plan for, for 2024 is to examine this stuff closer because it, it sounds meta. It sounds like we've been engaging in sort of a circle jerk, but it's really important to know what kind of world we live in. And if we're not acknowledging the basic reality that our, our media influences us, the medium is the message, and that we have changed our entire identity onto digital selves what are we even doing if we're not even aware of the impact that has on us? Let me just say, some people might think this is a circle jerk, but if you're listening, let me tell you this. You're just a jerk in the circle, baby. <laughs> um, Dimes, where can people find your your work and your um, your co-host as well? on Yeah. 
I'd say uh, bloodsatellite.ca would be the main hub to find all the show-related stuff. Um, I also publish long-form writing on a publication I run called the Vanguardist Journal. That's vanguardistjournal.com. Um, and we also sell uh, merchandise uh, from Blood Satellite and also some other people that we've partnered with, including uh, Z-Man, Jay Burden, Censored and On, many people from our space. On a store called the Good Suffer Store. That's goodsuffer.com. T-shirts, mugs, stickers, all kinds of things, including a book that I wrote of uh, short stories called The Colossal Corpus of Serious Gloves. Um, you can find that there. Anyway, that's all the plugs. I'm not going to avalanche you with that. But um, I also want to say thank you so much for having me. This has been, once again, one of my favorite talks that I've had. Well, I'm I'm certainly flattered. And of course, as I, I changed his little heading on StreamYards halfway through the show, but you can find Dimes as well on Twitter at Legally Ironic. Uh, be sure to give him a follow. He's always a fun guy to, to listen to as well on his own show. Their lovely links will be down below in the description. And if you want to, again, uh, read more Marshall McLuhan, read more Harold Innes, we will be covering those things on the Prudentialist Patron Book Club. So if you tune in now, and two dollars on Subscribestar, YouTube channel memberships, or Substack, you can get access to uh, the 27th of January, 2024 uh, review and discussion of Marshall McLuhan's Understanding Media Second Edition. So, with that, be sure to follow Dimes and our uh, his wonderful friend Judas over on uh, Blood Satellite. It's always funny when I see you two talk together. You always uh, blab more than he does I like to think that he's your your alter ego sometimes but uh, it'd be funny the... if he was here the whole time too that'd be <laughs> great. just like you know mouth taped over is just watching as you just speak for both of you but no uh follow follow uh blood satellite follow dimes follow judas over there they do great work the vanguardist journal is a fun thing to read he put out a really lengthy piece on geopolitics i really enjoyed so uh, those links will be down below in the description you can find me on all available podcast platforms if you don't want to see this on youtube and uh, be sure to follow, like, subscribe, comment, all those wonderful things. And we will see you all next time. God bless. Take care and be prudent, everyone.